Hey everybody, welcome to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. Alright, uh, it is another Sunday night and I am committed to getting these out to you on Monday. So, yeah, sitting in here. Oh, getting back into the swing of things after several days of just awesomeness. 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 Yeah, awesomeness. Just let's just say it was, it was a fun couple of days. Um, <clears throat> as you, if you follow me on Instagram, you know I went to the, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to post it. I'm sorry, you're gonna, it's gonna drive you nuts that I'm gonna be posting some of these videos. I'm gonna talk about that here in a minute, but anyway, um, I digress. So <laughs> Thursday night was uh, the Tool concert in Denver. Oh my goodness, so worth it. Wow, great show, great, great show. Um, went with a buddy of mine, Danny Simonson, and uh, yeah, holy moly, incredible, incredible. But it, it, but there's it's it's it, it's it's story rich. So let me just segue to that real quick because I'm telling you, um, if you enjoy the band Tool, you need to get online and take a look at their tour dates. Some of you, I mean, they're already in about a third of the way. I think they're about a third of the way through their tour dates here in the U.S., but there's just a pile of them. Um, and I think they go all the way to the end of March across the United States. And if you are a fan or you've even liked a couple of their songs in the past and you've always, you know you've just kind of been mildly interested, get online and just take a look and see where they're going to be near you. And check on tickets because the, the 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 honest thing is right now we're Danny and I are trying to figure out <clears throat> can Danny's all in. I mean Danny Simonson, he's all in. I mean he's he's a military guy. <clears throat> he's uh <laughs> he's got probably maybe a little bit more flexibility than I maybe, I don't know. I don't know, but Danny's like, we need to go again, like and hit another concert. And I'm not saying no, damn it. Holy hell, it was a good concert. And and would I like to go see him again? Yes, I would. Because I have a feeling, <clears throat> a lot of people have talked about the fact that, I'm going to get into here in a minute why I'm sounding the way I am. <clears throat> um, a lot of people have talked about the fact that this is probably the last concert, this, this is the last tour. Um, and some of the things that Maynard, so you got Maynard James Keenan is the uh, lead singer of tour, Tool. He's 57. Danny Carey, the drummer, is 60, and um, Justin Chancellor, I don't remember which one's, if it's Adam or Justin, who's the the youngest one at like 50, but the other one I think is like 56 or something, so they're they're all starting to get up there, the guys that are playing the instruments are crushing it, man, I mean, they're crushing it, but if anybody listens to Tool knows that the vocals that Maynard does is just, I mean, they're tough. I mean, they're they're tough. And so, for instance, um, oh, I've got one more cookie. So I'm over here munching on my my wife. We've got a Sam's Club subscription membership, and uh, she stumbled onto these twice-baked orange cranberry little cookie things. Yeah, they're... My like little bundles of crack, cocaine, and they're tasty. 
Um, I thought I ate them all. I got one. One. One is here. I will savor that for a moment. Here in a moment. But anyway, uh, if you listen to the, the, the lyrically, they're they're phenomenal. Tool is phenomenal. If you're not familiar with Tool, it's it's a rock band, and it is a, you know a lot of the songs are explicit. And there's swearing in it. Uh, but the beautiful thing about Tool is is a lot of their lyrics are very thought provoking. They're very deep. They're, they're well done, um, and they're they they tackle some pretty interesting concepts and thought exercises and things that people deal with in and out of their life and hypocrisy of of society sometimes. And so lyrically, uh, the lyrics are just just phenomenal. And so. Um, there's one song that's an older, it's an older song called The Grudge, and that's what it is. It talks about holding a grudge and just basically freaking let it go. You know, it's your choice. You can just hold on to that grudge or you can just let it go. Well, the relevant point to me bringing that song up is at the end, when they did it in the beginning, now obviously you can do things with computers and, and editing and all that type of stuff, but even on some live shows, there's like a twenty-five, se- like a twenty or twenty-five second long scream. Mater just let just, ah, just just lets it fly and holds that dang thing for twenty seconds, maybe more. And so, if you look at past concerts and, and when they play that, I mean, it's not uncommon back in the day. You know, fifteen to twenty seconds or whatever. Well, we, we thought they were going to play that song in the, in the set list uh, in Denver on Thursday night. And so I did. I wanted to pay attention to how long he was able to hold it. Well, he, he, like, he held it for like 10 seconds. So it still sounded awesome. And he still sounds good, but just it's not there. And, and the other thing, too, is, you know, he right in the beginning, he even talked about the face. He's like, so when you're 57 and you think you're when you're 57 but you really think you're 47, so you act like you're 37, and you or something something along the lines, of, you know, you're 57, but you 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 think you're 47, so you act like you're 27. I don't I don't remember how it I'll finish up, but basically it was like, holy hell, this is this is rough. I mean, it's it's tough to sing these songs uh, anymore, and and this actually was a, a conversation that came up on a Joe Rogan podcast years ago. Where Joe was interviewed and uh, interviewing Maynard, and, and Maynard said he, he's he's having trouble singing Tool songs these days. Uh, Maynard also sings uh, vocals for Pussifer and A Perfect Circle, but those uh, both of those bands they have some extended songs, but a lot of those songs are radio ish, radio esque, radio friendly, where they're three to four, maybe they're maybe they're five minutes. There are piles of Tool songs that are, you know, 15 minutes, you know, exceptionally long songs. And there's a lot of vocals in it, and there's a lot of aggressive vocals in it. So everybody that's a Tool fan is really thinking that this is, this is the last, this is the last hurrah. It it was 14 years between uh, 10,000 Days, the the album 10,000 Days, and this latest album, I think it was 14 years. Uh, Fear Inoculum. 10,000 Days, I thought, was probably one of the best albums they've ever done. And then they came out with Fear Inoculum. I'm like, holy moly. I understand some of you Lateralis and some of the other ones. Uh, they're, okay, don't get me wrong. They're freaking phenomenal. 
But when I look for my taste, when I go through the 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 the, the song list on Ten Thousand Days or especially Fear Inoculum, the the sheer number of songs that I like out of that album, it like right out the gate initially is is crazy. Number one and number two, the just just the lyric just lyrically what they put together in those albums was phenomenal. So when they did the tour, uh, they started the tour for Fear Inoculum a couple years ago. Well, then COVID hit and just shut everything down. So it started off awesome and everybody was just like, this is incredible. Well, then everything got shut down and there was a lot of people that went, did we just miss it? Did did COVID just oops shut this whole thing down to where we're never going to hear these, you know, we're never going to have another concert from Tool again. It just it it's just over. Well, then all of a sudden they announced that no, no, we're going to we're going to hit the road and I mean when they hit the road, I'm talking like geez, oh Pete. I I'm look it doesn't matter. I'm not I'm not going to spoil I'm not going to screw myself. There's there's other cities that are not too far away from me or there it's not that they're not too far away from me, but there there are cities that I have the ability to go to around me that still have tickets. So I'm not going to spoil it because I may just darn well have to bite the bullet and just buy some other tickets and go to another concert because it was just incredible. But anyway, there's they're playing in pretty much like every state, every city. I mean, it, it's incredible the size of the tour that they're doing. Um, so when that got announced, I mean, everybody just lost their ever-loving minds. Denver sold out. I think it was like something like 30 minutes it was it was crazy, to, well to the point. But there you go to the point. Denver. So it was the uh, what is it? it's the it's called the Bell Theater now. It used to be the Pepsi Center. It's the, it's where they play the Avalanche hockey games and and uh, I think some of the basketball games. <clears throat> um, I think it's called the Bell Theater now. Yeah, I think it's the Bell Theater. Um, they sold that sucker out in like thirty minutes to the point where they uh, over a, the, the course of a couple days ended up finding. Uh, that they actually could get into the World Arena down in Colorado Springs, and they had a concert the next night on Friday night down in Colorado Springs. And man, okay, so we paid three hundred bucks. I paid three hundred. It was about three hundred fifty bucks. It was three hundred fifty bucks for the tickets, and I have no regrets. They were great tickets, and I have zero regrets. We sit there and we were joking. <clears throat> Dude, I'm I'm serious. We were joking. We were sitting there having dinner. So uh, Keith, a buddy of mine, and Danny and I met at the restaurant uh, right there. Uh, what is it? Brooklyn's right across from the Pepsi Center. I'm going to call it the Pepsi Center. It is what it is. It's the Pepsi Center, man. Anybody that knows Denver, it's the Pepsi Center. Come on. It's the Pepsi Center. Bell Theater. Yeah, you may have bought Bell Aerospace. You may have bought it. I don't care. It's the Pepsi Center. Sorry. Um, but anyway, we were eating dinner right across there. And so we were looking, Danny's looking and, and dude, there's freaking, there was tickets. There were tickets available for Friday the next night. And they were actually good tickets. And then we look at it, they're like 150, they're half of what we paid. I'm like, so Danny's like, you know, we joked about going all in. We're like, dude, we ought to do this. Now, meanwhile, I'm going to be up. There's only so many times I'm in Denver. So I had all sorts of things lined up with people I wanted to meet and, you know, so we joked and we you know, flirted with the idea. And then, you know, it. anyway, we didn't do it. We didn't pull the trigger. We didn't go. Um, and that's the other thing, too, is there, there, there's two different set lists that they're playing. And so one set list has uh, the Fear Inoculum music 
in it, of course, the the you know a good portion of the latest album, but then they reach way back, like the Patient, Opiate, uh, the Grudge, um, Hooker with you know what, um, some of the older older songs that they're playing. But the other set list, so they're alternating. The other set list has several songs from Ten Thousand Days, which is awesome. And so, it, well. I guess there's a, there's a couple songs from Ten Thousand Days, and then they've got uh, then the other one is is they they switch off and they add in Sober and um, Right in Two, which are two of my favorite songs. Well, of course, our Denver tickets are, are the other one. It's the Opiate Patient uh, and Hooker. Well, I don't maybe was maybe they're not switching that one out. Anyway, anyway, well, Colorado Springs is is the other set list with Sober and. 10,000 days and I'm like man so anyway we 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 declined we did not go and then as soon as as soon as like seven o'clock you know this concert started both of us are you know I'm at I'm with dinner with another friend of mine and me but the next morning we were like son of a we should have just done it we should have just pulled the trigger and just done it well now I'm looking at some of these other venues that are like in February and March well hell there's some of them they're like the, the tickets are like 75 bucks I'm like what the how do you not? So, <clears throat> my point to you, if you are a fan of Tool, if you even liked just a couple of Tool songs, and you've heard Tool songs in the past, and you're like, man, that sounded really good, just go to the damn concert. Because you're never going to, this is, you know, based on what Mater, a couple of comments at the concert, based on what he said in podcasts, based on a lot of other things, I have a feeling this is this is it. This is this is going to be the last time we we hear these guys in concert um, on a on a big tour. Maybe there'll be some rock festival somewhere, and they just show up and play a couple songs, and, and that's it. That, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a tour. Um, not saying they may not make more music, but whether or not they make uh, another tour, I don't. I I doubt it. Um, I hope I hope I'm wrong. But anyway, I mean, he Maynard was just cashed. I mean, but he even joked about the fact that Denver, you know, you forget Denver is a mile high. And, and all of, you know, if he lives in, you know, you're living down on the coast, you know, at sea level. And then you're playing around in all these other cities, you know, and they started off on the West Coast. So, you know, Tacoma and, you know, what was it, Seattle or Tacoma? I don't remember, maybe both of them. Um Anyway, they were up in Washington, and you know, so they're playing near sea level. And then he comes out, and they they just jump right into Denver. And he just he laughed. He's like, "Holy hell, you guys need to get oxygen in here." He was just sucking wind. He, I mean, he flat dead. He's like, "I'm fucking." Excuse my language. He's like, "I'm fucking tired." <laughs> so anyway, there are tickets, my friends. In a lot of these, a lot of these cities, there's tickets, and they're not that expensive. I think the reason why we paid three fifty is because this da- the damn uh, Bell Theater. It's not the band because I mean they're not selling tickets for that much in other places. So anyway, I'm looking at I'm gonna I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to convince my wife to to give me a couple more days to go travel and and go see this concert again. I'll give it a I mean I'm not gonna go tomorrow, but maybe in February, maybe in March, we'll have to you know see what the end of the tour looks like and see how they're doing because. It, the 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 visuals of the concert were just incredible. They sounded good, man. They sounded really, really good. Are there? A, it's a live performance, and these 
a lot of these songs are very intense. And so were there little four, you know, foibles here and there? Was Maynard a little, did he miss a little bit? Okay, yeah, he did. But, I mean, it's freaking live and he's just cranking it. So I will get, I mean, it was good. It was, for a live concert, it was phenomenal. But with that being said, Danny Carey, I'm sorry. Uh, to uh, respect to all my Neil, Neil Pert fans, Neil Pert and Danny Carey are the best drummers in the world. And if Neil Pert and Danny Carey were going to go play the same arena at the same time, or or back you know back and forth or whatever, Neil Pert would be the one carrying Danny Carey's drum kit into the arena. Sorry, not sorry. Neil Pert is awesome. I'm sorry he's not Danny Carey. Uh, He's not Danny Carey. Danny Carey, at 60 years old, that guy was up there and just absolutely crushed it. Every song. Every song crushed it. And for anybody that knows the Fear Inoculum album, you'll know there's a song in there called Chocolate Chip Trip. Okay, it's just a it's a it's a drum solo little deal. Um and quite honestly, the one on the album, it's good, but I'm not really if it's not one of my favorite songs on the album. Let's just put it that way. I will I when I'm listening to the album, I'll just skip it. It's a good drum solo, but it just I don't know. I just the it's just not my it's just it's okay. It it's musically I mean, technically, it's stupidly crazy, but musically, it's like, no, nah, nah, whatever. So when they, so they did the intermission, and uh, on all the set lists, it, it comes out to where you do a, about a 10, 12 minute intermission, and then they come back and finish the concert, and, and the first song after the intermission is that chocolate trip, chocolate chip trip, and so I was joking to Danny, I'm like, you know, I peed before. You know, I the concert started and I nailed that sucker. You know, you always dance around. You you're like, hmm, I'm hitting here. We've had a beer or two, whatever. We're we're hanging out, but you know, the the, the we're it's getting ready to go. But if you go pee too soon, you're gonna have to pee when the songs are playing. But if you go pee too late, you're gonna miss the opening. And it's like, hmm, you get you just, you just gotta man. I nailed that sucker to a T. Because again, you're gonna have a line of people just stacked out the, you know, out the bathroom door trying to get a navigate. Man, I nail it, perfect nail it. Got done. Come down, and literally as I get like right next to my seats, lights go down. I'm like, yes. So I was good to go. But I joked. I was like, you know, intermission here. If I've got to pee, maybe I will go because intermission is 10, 12 minutes. Everybody and their brother, sister's uncle is in line for the bathroom. You're not going to the, you're not getting there and coming back and getting back anytime soon. So I was like, well, you know what? I'll, I'll let the, the crowd die down and I'll just duck out if it's chocolate chip trip, right? Uh, yeah, no, didn't have to pee, number one, which was awesome. Number two, I am, whoa, no. It was improvised. Uh, well, no, let me rephrase, not improvised. Well, no, let me double rephrase. I don't know if it was improvised. Improvised. It was not a verbatim execution of Chocolate Chip Trip from the album. It was completely new. And oh my goodness. Now, I might just have to go ahead and post a video of that. I am not saying, I'm, I'm neither confirming 
nor-ing, nor denying whether or not at this moment, whether or not I may or may not have um, videoed. Uh, even though we were told expressly that, you know, there's no videoing of anything, which is, I can, I'll segue to that one here in a second. But anyway, it was amazing. It was absolutely, in. it was insane. Technically, you know, rhythmically, just from a, tri- it just, man, at 60 years old, he is just flat going. And Adam and, and Justin, I mean, they were, they're on it. I mean, they're flat on it. And so, incredible concert. Incredible concert. So if you even, again, this is the last time we're going to see him. The visuals were awesome. The light show was pretty damn good. I mean, it was it was freaking good. So, if you're interested, I mean, if you, I, the number of people that have messaged me or you can just even comments are like, dude, I'm so jealous, blah, blah. Well, just freaking go online and look because I'll bet you any money they're, they're near you within an hour, within an hour or two or three or four or five. I don't know. You can grab a hotel. That's what we did. Grabbed a hotel right across the street. And I'm mean, what well, that wasn't cheap, but I mean, it's better than having to deal with traffic and everything else, but grab a hotel, go, just go, man. There's actually decent seats around. And quite honestly, you'll see in the, there's like single seat here, single seat here. Unless you have to hold hands with your buddy, who gives a crap? Just go freaking fill an empty seat because the tool community, the the family of fans is just insane anyway. It was all it was just fun for all of us around. It just it was awesome, man. Go check it. You you got to look. You, you got to look. Do yourself a favor. And and I say that because of this. Okay, so I just turned 50 years old. And I love Pink Floyd. It, it, it this is a this is something let me segue real quick because it's relevant and for a lot of you that are that are younger that are listening to me um this is a lesson that I that I've learned you will hear people talk about you know I have no regrets no regrets how I've lived I have no regrets okay you're either a liar you're full of shit you're a liar or you're just not thinking that hard because there's a lot of things that I've done in my life that I look back and I'm like, oh, I missed it. Um, I didn't, I didn't behave in a manner that would have been. I, I could, I had a choice of how to behave. I chose one route, and now with hindsight, 2020, I can look back and be like, mm, I regret that I made that decision because I could see where this would blah 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 blah, or I could have saved myself some aggravation. But if you really think about your life and you go through things, you're going to find out that yes, there's going to be times where you know what I do regret things. I do. Now, are they life-altering, changing things that you know I'm like, oh, I've screwed my whole life up? No, no. But can I say I regret? Yeah, I do. So when somebody says, oh, yeah, I got no regrets, you're full of shit. You're just not thinking that hard. You're not, or you're not being honest, one or the other. Because one of the things I will say that I do regret, two, it's it's like double-edged. It's double-edged. Because I was a I was twice a dumbass. I was dumbass squared on the same genre. I when I was in high school, I had a chance to go see. I don't remember if it was high school or middle school. I don't remember the dates. Don't give me, and and anybody that is a fan of Pink Floyd, Delicate Sound of Thunder. That that album came out. Pink Floyd did a tour, and I had a chance to go to that concert. And I didn't. Now, 
I didn't be, and, and I don't even know if my, I, I'm not going to get into how I was raised other than I was very, it was a very strict household. I don't know if I would have even been allowed to go to that concert back in that time. Um, anybody that's a firstborn, the oldest kid, you know, we end up, so if you, have, if you have like brothers and sisters, the only, the only children are different. You, you guys get just treated differently, but the oldest in like two or three siblings or three or four or five siblings, the oldest one is the one that your parents practiced on. And then as it, as the, the, the brothers and sisters were added, they just learned what worked, what didn't work. And it, by the time they're like, nah, I just don't give a shit. And, and so the firstborn is the one that usually gets clamped down on the middle, to, you know, middle ones. At some point, the, the, the baby of the family, it's like they can do whatever the freaking hell they want to, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I was the, I was the oldest, I was the firstborn. So, eh, what I, whether would I've even been able to allow to go to that concert, I don't know back then, but I had a chance to go to Delicate Sound of Thunder and I didn't, I didn't try to take it. Okay. Fast forward several years. I'm like, man. That was stupid. Well, I joined, long story short, I joined the military. I get stationed over in Germany and like a dumb, and, and I was, I was kind of half brain dead while I was over in Germany. I was traveling. I was in, enjoying the country, you know, obviously doing my military stuff, but every free moment that I had was either traveling and seeing new cities and stuff or going over and spending time with a friend of mine from high. So we had a French foreign exchange student in high school. Her name was Sandra Bonservin. And she was from Paris, smoking hot, but she was from Paris. She came to our high school. We ended up becoming friends. We went to the prom together. Okay. So when I graduate, you know, we, you know, obviously when we graduate high school, we exchange, um, uh, contact information, blah, 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 blah. So I forget about her. I go off to college for a, a couple of years and then I end up joining the military, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward. Now I'm stationed in Germany. And I have all my stuff, and all of a sudden I stumble up. I'm like, wait a minute. Paris is like just a couple of hours on the train. Like, it's just a couple hours away. I'm like, I need to reach out to Sandra. So I do. Boom. She's like, holy hell, yes, come. And so it was awesome. So I would spend several, I don't remember how many trips I took to Paris and stayed at her place and just traveled Paris from an insider's, you know? So, I mean, it, it was fun. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the piss out of it. But what did I not do? I did not pay attention to what the hell was going on around the world as far as music, at least not Pink Floyd. I lost track of it. And come to find out, here we are, the last real big tour that Pink Floyd does at Earl's Court in London. They have uh, the Pulse Tour, which... You can get on YouTube and look up a lot of the songs. They have a DVD, which I have. That Pulse tour, the the play, the set list on that was incredible. Number one and number two, the execution from the the band was just uh, mind blowing. Dave Gilmore was, I mean, the entire group was on it, and there are several songs from that set list that I think that live performance actually executed the best version of the song, period. From studio version to previous live versions, how they played it and how they executed it in at Earl's Court was the best they'd 
ever done. Dude, I was a spit throw. I could have been there, man. Was I? No. So do I regret that? Yes. So when it comes down to things that you see, you know, you're like, man, I really like Tool or I like some of these songs and it seems really interesting. And man, I'm if you're curious about it, get off, hit pause right now. Hit pause, go to your computer, look up a city near you, just go to Tool Music, go to Tool, their website, you look up their uh, concert schedule, see who's around you, see where you might be able to make it and go and just check to see if there's tickets, man. Because you might find tickets and they might not be that bad. And you spend a couple hundred bucks and you go have a an experience in your life that you will never forget. And I remember the the so I've I've listened to uh some other concerts in my life, but the 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 one that I will never forget is when I was in going to school in uh, northern Wisconsin. So I went to Northland College in northern Wisconsin. So basically anybody that's familiar with Wisconsin, just drive north until you hit Lake Superior. That's Ashland, Wisconsin. Okay, it's right on the shores of Lake Superior. Northland College is <laughs> Northland College. It, Northland College is a small, small private college. It does kind of lean on the more environmental side now these days, but I didn't know that back then. But regardless, um, right on the on the shores of of Lake Superior. So that's where I went. Well, there was a concert in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And back in that day, so we're talking about 90, 91. Damn Yankees and Bad Company. Damn Yankees, Ted Nugent and and Company and then Bad Company. Oh my gosh, was that a great concert. But the funny part is is both bands were incredible. They they sounded great and they, it was a, it was a great concert. But the thing that I still to this day remember. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to go to this Tool concert. If you've never been to a concert or a, a really, really passionate, rowdy concert where the fans are just really good or passionate, to feel tens of thousands of people screaming in unison at the top of their lungs, it's powerful. It's I, I it, it's no wonder that you know performers that get up on stage and and have that being shut. It's no wonder they get addicted to it. It's no wonder that they just don't want to quit it because it's I can't even imagine it. It's 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 it gives me goosebumps thinking about it just being here and I'm just in the crowd. I can't imagine being up on stage and having tens of thousands of people responding to you and. It what sat in my memory from back in the day, my what I consider to be still my very quote unquote my first concert where I bought a ticket, went with some friends, stood in the stands. It wasn't even damn Yankees or Bad Company. Both of those guys were great. What I remember were the the roadies, the 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 guys that tune the guitars and make sure the drums are set and ready and tuned and, and ready to go they come out and obviously if you're going to be tuning guitars for Ted Nugent I'm going to guess you probably know how to play a guitar 
So here this guy gets up on stage, and I mean, he lays in, and the crowd just, because everybody was like, holy hell, Ted Nugent just walked out on stage and just lit into just this guitar lick. No, it's just the guy that's tuning the guitar. So everybody just launches like, just losing their minds. And then we all see that it's it's the guy tuning the guitar, and nobody cared because the guy was shredding it. Just awesome. Just up there just cranking just a, a couple just guitar like just solo. Cru- just crushed it. Crushed it. Again, the guy comes out to tune the, you know, the, the drums, and he just goes down, and everybody's losing their mind. Because these guys just walked out on stage, and it was insane. They were good, and they just got the whole crowd going. Well, they get everything done. They get they get everything tuned up. They walk off on stage. We walk off stage. Blah blah blah. blah. Lights go start to go down. So you know it's kicking up, and all of a sudden, here they play it. ACDC, Thunderstruck. Ah, thunder. Ah, and I mean. I will never, ever forget that experience in my entire life. I don't remember what the stadium was made out of, but I do remember the sound. So like in the Den- Den- the Pepsi Center, it's all concrete. You know, the-, the chairs are screwed into concrete. Now, I don't know back in the-, the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, what the Minneapolis-St. Paul, what that arena was made out of. But what I do remember is it just tens of thousands of people bouncing just jumping up and down bouncing to the rhythm of thunderstruck and then i how many th- i don't know how many people were there thunder just and the entire stadium is just bouncing and i'm not talking about the people i'm talking about the people but you can feel the stadium move you could feel the floor moving Thunder, and they freaking pl- they cranked that song, and that crowd absolutely lost its ever loving shit. And I just sat there with goosebumps, just in awe. And then the lights come up, and here's the first group, and they start going, and the, everybody just loses their ever loving mind. It's awe. If you've not experienced that, <laughs> you need to. So get up. I mean, again, especially with Tool, Tool, you're going to get because there's just rabid fans. I mean, like fans that it, it, just stupid rabid fans. So when all of a sudden that first note of that uh, they played from, you know, again, it's the Fear Inoculum tour. As soon as the first note of the first song hit, the, the, the crowd just loses it. And the light show and, and all the, the, just everything with it, it's just incredible. It, it, if you've never experienced it, you owe it to yourself. I don't care if it's Tool or not, um, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. This is it. I, I really do believe this is it. You're not going to get this again. So just go. Just go and enjoy and just just see the spectacle. Um, anyway, that was a longer that was a longer. I, I don't care. I don't care. It, it, I don't care. I'm enjoying it because I'm, I'm reliving it and I've got a whole. So, okay, let me let, let's just go into that a minute because people need to be okay. Th- Focus my thoughts, really. 
Because there was also a component of this trip and this concert that was just this educational. You got to see so many different things, uh, just markers of society these days that I just sat and was fascinated by. Okay, so now, I am not vaccinated. I'm not, I, I don't have the vidvax, okay? And, I'm, and, and unless something life-altering happens, I, I, let me just rephrase it. I'm not getting the damn vax, okay? I'm just not going to happen. I've already had it, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Or I've, already, I've already had the vid, so it doesn't matter. But regardless, for this particular theater, the theater management has made it a policy that for any event, whether it's a sporting event or anything else, you have to either show your vax card that you're fully vaccinated or you have to provide a negative COVID test in order to walk through the door. Now, and then you've got, you know, then they talk about mask requirements and, and all sorts of other stuff. So, okay, whatever. So, but it, for a lot of us that are dealing with in some of these states where you know how it is these days. Most people are over it. Where, unless you are a cult, you're a member of the 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 COVID religion, the the Church of COVID. Most people are over it. There's going to be people that, and I did to I I will occasionally to play the game and and you know blah 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 whatever. But most people are getting really really sick and tired of it. So when you look at, you know, you go to a grocery store or a gas station or whatever, a lot of them will still have the, the sign on the front, you know, in order to come through the doors, you got to be fully masked up and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, 80% of the people are just walking right through the freaking front door. No one gives a rip. No one's saying anything. Maybe all the employees have a mask on, half-ass mask at this point. Now, there's going to be some people walking around, and I saw them the other night, you know, like three big, thick, heavy masks. I'm not joking you. I sat and I looked at this guy, and I'm like, how are you even functionally breathing? Like, legitimately. Three masks. Each one of them was a big, thick, heavy-duty cloth mask. N95 was the, was the so he had an N95, and I and I know that only because of the way the, the little, uh, the bumps on the outside. I, I'm assuming it's an M95 because there was something on his cheeks, you know, or not on his cheeks, but on the front of the mask where it looked like there was bumps. So he's got a thick, heavy-duty mask, and then he's got a big, massive uh, cloth mask over that, and then a third heavy-duty cloth mask over all of that. You could clearly see he was triple masked, okay? So there are going to be some people like that, and then there's going to be other people like me that are like, I'm I'm done. I'm, I'm over it. Now you can cast stones at me what you want. I don't care. That's hey, it's your prerogative. It's your prerogative. But just like your grocery store, just like your your gas station, you, okay, the sign is there. The policy, quote unquote, the company policy is such. Do they enforce it? Does everybody follow it? Nah. Okay. So here I'm like, all right. Well, I'm, I don't have a vax card. I'm not going to get one. So I just need to have a, a negative test, right? Because theoretically, theoretically, I can't enter the venue without a negative COVID test. So I, I mean, literally weeks ago, lined up a COVID test, got it all set up, double checked last week or yeah, well, two at this point, it's two weeks ago, the week before the test, it has to be a negative COVID test within 72 hours. I'm like, all right, so 
It takes 12 to 48, or excuse me, 24 to 48 hours to get the results back. So I'm going to do it on uh, the concerts on Thursday. I'm going to get my test on Tuesday morning. That way I've got at least 48 hours before the show. I'm going to get my test results, but then I've got another 24 hours that's going to cover the, the, the show. You know, I, I'm within that 72-hour window. So I do. I go and get get the COVID test, I, you know, swab my little nostrils and um they're like, all right, we're good to go. I'm like, all right, so yeah, 24 to 48 hours, they'll let you know. I'm like, excellent. So 24 hours goes by, don't hear anything. I'm like, all right, well, they said 24 to 48, so I'm like, I'll check tomorrow. So 48 hours comes, and I've got nothing. Okay, this is the morning, morning of the concert, Thursday. So now I'm a little panicky. I'm like, uh, what the hell's going on here? Why don't, why don't I have results yet? So I call the place that gave it. Gave me the test. They're like, yeah, no, I, I, no, we, they should be. I, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right. So they had, I had a phone number for the testing facility. So I call the testing facility. I'm like, hey, this is who I am. This is my birthday. This is blah, blah, blah. I took the test on this date. I'm supposed to know between 24 and 48 hours. Well, I'm already past the 48 hours. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. She says, the dreaded, we have no record of your COVID test. I'm out of Excuse me. Yeah, we, we don't have, there, there is no COVID test here for you. <gasps> what? I'm literally packing up the vehicle to drive because I've got to drive the five hours to get over there. I'm going to meet some, you know, I, I was going to head straight over to Phil Mendoza's at, at No Limits Archery. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. The, the concert doesn't start until 730. So I can wait, I can delay. But at this point, I'm like, what, the, what, 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 what do you, what do you mean you don't have a, what? So you want to talk about panic. Start mild panic well she starts looking and she's like oh no 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 here it is it just came in this morning I'm like excuse me she's like yeah it just showed up here this morning I'm like I took that two days ago yeah I don't know sir it just showed up in the box this morning okay she's like well I tell you what let me you know call me after 1 p.m central and let me see what we can do I'll, I'll better information for you after that so meanwhile i'm driving down the road i'm like okay i live in the middle of nowhere there are no rapid tests around me at all no one has them they're all out the only place i can get a covid test is where i already did it and it already takes them for 12 or 24 to 48 hours so i can't so now i've got to drive head towards denver and hope to dear lord i can find a place if i don't get a result hopefully i can find a rapid test somewhere and get um a negative result Luckily, luckily, she calls me like, the, the lady calls me like 10 minutes to one. And she's like, well, I, no, sorry, they just sent me a text. Bing, get the text, look, bam, there's my test results. Negative. I'm like, sweet. So I'm golden, right? Crisis averted. I'm good to go. But I'm still wondering, I'm like, yeah, whether I'm, I'm, I'm going to just even need this. So I reach out to a couple friends of mine that live out there, and I'm like, how, does anybody know? Are they really even checking these things? So a buddy of mine that, um, one of the buddies of mine, he's like, yeah, my sister was just at the, a game the other day, and they, she, he goes, yeah, they're, they're actually checking everything. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. I've got everything I need. I'm good to go. But I'm thinking, okay, they're just going to check. Okay, yeah. And my guess is it was probably going to be like this random check where you everybody's just filing in and every now and then they're like, hey, hey, Paul. No. <laughs> oh, oh, no. No, no, no. The, the Bell Theater in Denver, Pepsi Center. Oh, that's Third Reich, my friends. Papers, please. There were four layers 
of security, quote unquote, into that building. You couldn't even walk through the front door without having them check your vaccination card or your negative health test. And when I say check it, ID out, vax card in their hand, and they're putting them side by side. They're looking at name, name, birth date, birth date, face, matches you. Yes. What's the birth date again? Do the, okay, birth date on the vax card matches. Yeah, okay. The, that's the, okay, you're good to go. Like when I say they're checking, I mean, they're flat checking. And then, so I've got the, the, the negative health test on my, my phone. Well, of course my phone times out, disappears. I got to go back in and find it. And the guy's thinking, you know, you can see him. He's like, "Mm, okay, this guy, anyway, I bring it up, show it to him. He's like, all right, go on it. So I'm like, geez, oh Pete, if I had not been able to get that, there's no way I would have walked in that door. They would, nope, you're not getting through. So you walk in the door, next stop, metal detector, everything out phones, metal, everything, everything in the basket. And they are literally sitting there inspecting, looking at everything. You go through the metal detector. You hope it doesn't go off, but it didn't go off. Grab your stuff. Okay. Turn around. Boom. Now it's tickets. Okay. Tickets. That's easy. I had my tickets. Boink. Scan that bad chicken. Two steps through the turnstile. You mask on. I'm like, what? You cannot enter without a mask. Are you kidding me? Nope. Mask on. All right, fine. There's the mask on. Five steps past that point, one foot on the escalator, everybody's masks are off. Screw it. We're out. I mean, just it, literally four layers of security to step foot on the escalator. And after you step foot on the escalator, no one gives a rip. <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh. So let me get this straight. So all that was is for bean counters. That was just for CEOs. That was just for the, the management of that, that facility saying we we did our part and we can't control what they do after they walk in the door-ish, okay, right? So anyway, like 90%, 80% of the people in there didn't have a mask on, but there were still people that walked around with a mask on and there was no issues. You know, no one was saying anything. No one was looking at anything because I was waiting for it because I literally, okay, so there's the thing. And the reason why I sound the way I sound, um, and, I, and I'll, I'll qualify this in here in a second. In order for me to be able to walk into that door, I had to prove through a health test that I did not have COVID. But if you had a vaccine card, you could have literally been flaming full on COVID, COVID symptomatic. You could have been losing. You could have been on death's flipping door. Good to go. Walk in because you got the card. What? What? What clown world do we live in these days? Now, granted, there were there were people in there that were clearly sick, clearly sick, clearly sick. And so I'm kind of gotten stuffed up and kind of my head's hurting right now. Um, I probably picked up something. I don't know. Who knows? But flip side though, flip side, I, I, I'm not going to crucify them because you just paid, I paid $350. I can't even imagine what the front, you know, what is it, 500 bucks for the, for the tickets that are up on the, right up on the stage. I have no idea how many people, you know, what you spent to get into that venue. And this is the last time Tool's going to play. You would have had to wield, you could have wheeled me in on a gurney. 
on a, a wheelchair. I could have been in a hospital bed. Wheel me the freaking hell in. You can set me in a corner. I don't care. I paid my freaking ticket. I, I met all the, I checked all the boxes and I meet all, get me into the damn thing because I'm not missing this damn thing. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not crucifying the people that walked in the door that were sick. But the thing is, it's funny. It's like, okay, I have to, me standing here in line to buy a t-shirt, you can look at me all you want, Mr. Triple Mask. I had to prove that I was healthy. What about you, jackass? And, and your, 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 whatever, it doesn't matter. I digress. So I look at that and I just sat there and I'm like, this is just clown world. I mean, what are we doing? How, how stupid are we that we still put up with this crap? Okay, it doesn't make... It doesn't matter that I value it or I don't value it or I have an opinion that's different than someone else's. This, didn't we, weren't we supposed to believe that the science was settled back in the day for climate change? Okay, obviously that's not how science works. But weren't we supposed to believe that the science is settled? Well, if that's the case, can we just not rely on the CDC? Can we just not listen to the the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers themselves where all of them say... This thing does not keep you from getting COVID. It does not keep you from carrying COVID. And it certainly does not prevent you from spreading COVID. Oh, but, but I, got my, I got my card. So, I'm, so I, I'm, I'm, help, I'm protecting everyone else around me. You're full of shit. You're full of shit. You're full of shit. And I think you know it. You're just, anyway, I digress. So that's one part. So we're walking through this venue just watching the the just the dichotomy of just the joke that is this this covid fiasco right now but then the other flip side we get in there so i, I obviously you saw it so we get in there sit down i i did a couple video you know i posted a picture we were sitting there with danny and i i did a little video just laughing because yeah the the security's walking up and down the the roads and and there's pl- there's a little piece of paper signs everywhere saying no videoing like Phones off in your pocket, no videoing. If you get caught videoing, you will be escorted out of the building, no refund, and you're not allowed to come back in. You're gone. So, obviously, you're like, "Mm, I wonder how serious they are. Well, you can ask how serious they are, number one. Number two, if you're in the middle of a gargantuan section of seats, like up on the side of the, uh, uh, you know, the arena where there's like no, unless someone's going to wade through like 50 people, you know, to come over and poke you on the shoulder and like, sir, ma'am, you got your phone out. No, no. Where, where, where were our tickets? Like two seats away from the stairs coming down that met the floor. So where were all the security, like within an arm's reach of Danny and I. So, you know, if there was anybody going to get, nailed for videoing how what come on well m- meanwhile so i'm i'm there and and i was smart see i was smart i had a flannel shirt which has a, a chest pocket in it <laughs> so they tell you don't video the first song kicks up the light show that the, everything starts and i mean immediately people have got their phones out of their pockets but they're not being smart. If you're gonna do, if you're gonna break, if you're gonna bend the rules, can you just be smart about it? Okay. So here these guys are. It's dark in there, folks. Your video, your camera. You're looking at your camera. It's lit up. Everybody can see that you have your phone out. Okay. And if you if you're literally videoing with your phone out. 
both arms extended above your head and your phone just lit up like a Roman candle. Do you think? And you're on the edge of the main aisle. Don't you think you might get caught? Oh my gosh, the number of people around us that were just getting nailed, just left and right, nailed. And they did, the the girls that were behind us, um, all of a sudden we heard, you know, because of, of course the securities are going to have a flashlight, there, there's the flashlight in the middle of the dark, you know, you, boot. yeah, they, they made her take the phone, go through the camera, delete, you know, everything off the camera, and then actually go and delete it off the album, you know, the deleted, I mean, they, they made them delete it. And it almost looked like there was at least one person that may have actually been escorted out. I don't know if they were or not. And then, but just be, just come on, man. Just be smart about it. Because what, again, I will not, I can neither deny, I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not my phone was or was not placed in my chest pocket of the shirt that I may or may not have been wearing. And at that time, whether or not my phone may or may not have had the camera engaged, whether it was or whether it wasn't engaged, or whether or not the film, the video was, you know, active, and then whether or not a possible button had been pushed to where certain functions on the camera phone were you know engaged while certain light shows or songs were being that's neither here nor there but there's a way to be smart and there's a way to be stupid it's so easy to be smart why be stupid and there were so many stupid people in that room because the other flip, the the other the other aspect of the stupidity in that room, were the number of people that were literally that passed out drunk. Like they they collapsed, passed out. They were so drunk at the first or second song, they had to be literally carried out. Are you kidding me? And a lot of these were people on the floor. So you paid what four or five hundred dollars for these tickets? And you partied so hard that you don't even, you didn't even get to hear the entirety of the first song and you're, you're escorted out. Like you're out. Bye-bye. I don't know what they did to him when they got him out. I mean, I can't imagine they just chucked him out the door when it was that bitter cold, but I have no, what, 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 what? Oh, I'm sure, and I'm sure the next day they're like, God, oh, that was great. I was at the concert. You, were you? You're over there in the freaking back storage room sleeping it off because you were so stinking drunk that you couldn't even stand up. Why? I can't I can't even fathom that. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow five hundred bucks at least on you know, five hundred bucks on tickets. I'm gonna go through all the rigmarole to get through the door to see the last epic show of one of the most epic rock bands in 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 history. And I'm gonna be a dumbass, and I'm gonna get so drunk that I pass out and I can't watch it. <sighs> Brutal. So it was. Again, it was awesome. It was a great night. <laughs> it was. It was great. It was great. Uh, but the 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 cool thing, and I, and I I probably will post this because I mean it's just it's just cool. 
Um, the last song of the night, you know, the band was like, all right, fine, go ahead and pull your phones. And, and I think they were doing this to every concert. Uh, the last song they played on the set list is Invincible. Uh, again, it, just an incredible song. It talks about just, it does. It talks about getting older and feeling like, you know, it's, it, you know, back in your younger days, you were powerful. You could do anything you wanted. You were, you were a force to be reckoned with. And now you're getting older and man, you just can't do the things that you used to do. And, you know, <laughs> Yeah, just it just it it's it, lyrically it's just incredible. It it's it just is perfect about getting older and not being able to do the things that you used to do and just coming to the realization and grips with with that of oh crap, I can't do this stuff anymore, you know. Whether it's fitness or whether it's getting up on stage and just cranking and rocking like you used to, but it's a, it's an incredible song. So that's the last song of the of the set list. They let everybody video it if they wanted to. If I, I did because I was like, you know, I, I I enjoyed watching the show and taking it all in, but I did want to get a. I may or may not neither confirm nor deny whether I did or did not possibly grab some other things, you know, related to say hypothetically a video of you know, like say every song. Um, but it is neither here nor there. Um. That last one, I, I videoed the whole thing, and um, I'll probably share that with you guys just because some of you like Tool, and if you don't go buy a ticket, then or you've already missed the ticket or mi- missed the concert around where you are, then maybe you're not going to be able to ever see them again. I don't know. But um, there's already stuff starting to pop up on YouTube um, in different venues, and some of them are better than others. But anyway, this one was good. But definitely, definitely, you need to go check it out. If you, if you can't make Tool... Seriously, think about it. You know, any any of your favorite bands, you know, it, I, I had a chance to go see John Mayer uh, with my wife. Um, she had gotten tickets with some friends. And at the time, I was like, eh, I'm not interested. And then, you know, I, I should have, it was at Red Rocks. Incredible, incredible concert. And immediately, as soon as, you know, she goes, I'm like, damn it, I should have just gone. You know, it, it would just be, it would have been incredible you know, it, and apparently it was an absolute incredible concert. And of course, again, there you're like, damn it. I should have just gone, you know, I should have just gone. So just find yourself your local, your, your favorite band and go to, a, you know, or group or whatever, get yourself to a concert. It's just some, one of those things that you just have to experience and screw the freaking COVID paranoia. Yeah. I've got my head stuffed up now and I've kind of feel all hot and flustered, but I'm not running a fever and not coughing. My, eh, I probably picked up some little cold. Somebody was sick there and eh, it is what it is. Um, but then again, I was other places too. So that was the other thing on this past trip this past weekend. So I immediately went over to Phil's, uh, left here because I had, you know, over the years, you know, it's just like you and I, a lot of us that are, that are passionate bow hunters. Um, you end up getting more than one bow and I had a stack of them that I haven't been using. And then there's, so there was three of them that are only a couple years old that I just weren't, I wasn't using. They're in mint condition. I mean, they're, they're a phenomenal bow, but I'm not using them, you know? And yeah, I could get on archery talk or some of the other front and try to sell them. But, but Phil Mendoza at No Limits Archery has come up with a auction site, a used bow auction, um, app, if you will, or a resource. Um, definitely go check it out at, you know, go to, uh, No Limits, especially on his Instagram page. He's got a bunch of stuff posted on there. So you can either look up film, P-H-I-L Mendoza, Phil Mendoza, or just go to no limits, archery 
on Instagram and, and scroll through. You'll you'll see the the auction site that they just this this resource that they just built. It's pretty darn cool. Um, I might get him on the podcast to talk about it because it's a phenomenal phenomenal resource. Because you know you may want a high end pro shop bow, but you may not have the money to buy one. Well, you know if the bow is a year old. There's not a thing wrong with the technology of that bow. Sure, is there a newer version of that bow this year? Okay, so it's got a little bit of a different cam. It's got a little bit of a different limb angle or something. But the performance of the bow last year, there's not a dang thing wrong with it. Well, you could pick it up for like way, sometimes half of the cost of a brand new bow. It's still a pro shop bow. It's a still a high-end bow. But you can get it for a steal depending on the auction. So these guys put that together. I had those three bows. I wanted to go visit with Phil. I needed to pick up a couple other things anyway, but I dropped off those those bows to, to Phil when we got in. Met Danny uh, Simonson there. Went to dinner. Uh, went to the concert. Had a blast. Crashed at the hotel. Next day, went over and ran over to Kafaru. Met with uh, Aaron and, and Frank. Just to, just We didn't record a podcast. They were busy. Um, I probably could have done one if I'd gotten up early, but I'm not getting up early after a concert. Um, and they did play for like several hours. I mean, it was a, it was a lengthy, it was, it was, it was worth it. Um, but went and visited with, uh, Frank and, and Aaron chatted about a little bit of stuff of, uh, some of what's coming down the pipe as far as what Confaro is working on, which is awesome. I'll let, you know, I'm not, I, that's on there. That that's them to discuss it. I'm not going to spoil, not no spoiler alerts. But uh, it's going to be very intriguing. I'm I'm kind of interested. I'm I'm very my my curiosity is piqued, shall we say? Um, and then just chatted about the move to Wyoming and and how that was going. So they're going to be picking up and moving the entire op- most almost the entire operation up to uh, Wyoming. So it was a good visit. And then went and then spent some time with another friend of mine down at the Centennial Gun Club because I wanted to play around with some new pistols. I, I you know, I've got handguns here. You know, a lot of people are buying handguns these days. And and the one thing and there's so many good resources out there. Ones that have made a difference in my understanding and perception and education. I really do enjoy how Mike Glover, Fieldcraft Survival uh, American contingency. You can find his stuff on YouTube and other platforms or on just on Instagram, but Mike Glover actual or field craft survival. Um, he's ex, uh, special forces. Uh, the guy's legit, but the beautiful thing about being special forces, a lot of times those guys are, are geared more towards education, training, teaching other people, whether it's, Natives and you know it counter it doesn't matter. He teaches and he teaches well. I, I like how he teaches and I like how he brings other people in. And he's got a good channel and there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's T Rex arms and there's some other play. You know there's a lot of other folks that that talk about uh, a lot of this stuff. You can find a lot of good information now on YouTube and other platforms. One of the things that I've I realized over the years that we were you know purchasing you know firearms that. You know, I was purchasing them more based on, you know, what does it look like? What's the po- price point? And, you know, oh, yeah, it kind of feels cool. Oh, it looks like a cool, oh, that's really sharp looking. All right, and, and buy it. And then you get it home and you shoot it and it's like, man, I, 
I'm, I'm struggling to shoot it as efficiently and effectively as I thought I was going to be able to, or, you know, now that I put some rounds down range of it, it just feet, it just recoil is really harsh or it just feels clunky. It's, it's just not, it's just not quite what I thought it was. Um, so I have a bunch of the, I, I've got my, I've got the guns that I carry that I, that I like to carry, but there's a lot of new out there. And so a buddy of mine uh, and his son, well, they're members, but a, a buddy of mine's son is a range safety officer over at Centennial Gun Club. And over there, if you are in Colorado, south uh, southeast Denver, you can go in there, you set up an appointment, you can go in there and they've got a, they've got everything. I mean, it's a massive, if you've never been in there, it's a massive, massive gun store, uh, gun smithing. Uh, indoor ranges, training—they—they uh, they ha- they handle pretty much everything, and so you've got this wall of pretty much every pistol you can imagine that you're welcome to, you know, rent, shoot, you know, play with, and just see how it works for you. So I wanted to go play with a a, a bunch of different ones that I was curious about. Well, right off the bat, a number of the high end, you know handguns that a lot of people talk about, they just did not fit my hand. I grab it, present, and the sights just aren't there. They just, they're just not there. Whereas you pick up some other ones, grab it, just how you just, how doesn't matter how you grab it, just grab it, get a good grip, present, and man, every single time, they just bam, 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 the, the just sights are, they're just, it's just right there to where I, quite honestly, I don't even need to look at the sights. Because every time I grab it and present, it's it's on the money. And so I decided, like, all right, let me take these three. Let's take them to the range. Let's just shoot them. Let's see how it works. And sure enough, there was one right off the bat that, that felt good. It was great in my hand. It, it presented well. And, I mean, that thing, it was a shorter muzzle, uh, lighter. That thing just jumped all over the place to where it was very difficult for me to control the muzzle jump and get back on target in an efficient manner. Whereas the other two, they were just money. But the one had a little bit of a softer, spongier trigger than I preferred. Uh, even though it had some really good strong points on magazine well and and how, the, you know, just a bunch of different things. Um, the, the trigger just seemed a little... And spongy is not the way to say it, but it, there was a little bit more pull. There was just a little... More, once you come, you know, anybody that shoots a pistol especially one that's not a, you know, exposed hammer where you've got to cock it, you know, if you if you're just pull it up, pull the trigger and the, the gun goes off, you're going to come back there's going to be some play in that trigger. Some of them will have a, a safety in that trigger to where you've got to pull the trigger a certain way, certain distance, the safety disengages and then you hit what they call the wall where where all of a sudden now you're engaging. Okay? And then you just, depending on the the you're engaging the trigger. Depending on how the trigger is engineered, you might have to pull that just a fraction, a little tiny bit. Some of them you have to pull a little bit more. This one, it seemed like I had to pull just a little bit more than what ended up being the SIG. Uh, and this happened to be the M18, Mark 18, which is the uh, Marine version of the this particular handgun. At this point, it's very clear. Now, I don't like the M18 has an external safety, which I'm which I don't like. So I'm going to start playing around some with more of the SIGs. But I know that SIG has this this popularity wave going now, 
and it's the ooh, you know, greatest ooh hotness. I, I'm sorry, I it doesn't matter because at this point we are the M18 and I are considering a love affair because she loves me. Um, I can shoot that thing. Like, oh, yeah. 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 She likes me, and I like her, and we take care of each other. And, I mean, until it got out to 30, you know, 30 yards, or, excuse me, 30 feet, um, oh, yeah, we'll stack them. And, I mean, that wasn't me presenting being careful. Ain't, no, that was just present. Oh, sights there. Boom. Touch it off. Come back. The sights are right. And just. So there's a reason why SIG right now is riding high on the popularity train because uh, I guess they're well-deserving. Uh, at least in my hands, they are. Now that, that And that's why I was going to say that, you know, anywhere, wherever you're listening, if you have the ability to go to a private gun range, gun club or something like that, that offers this ability or gun store that says, you know, we've got a wide variety of guns and you can go shoot them. I really think at this, this day and age, with the options that are out there, the, just the versatility that are out there and the wide range of what what's uh, afforded to you, do not go buy one without shooting it. Find out what, again, we, we talk about this with bows all the time. We talk about this with boots all the time. You know, your body is built a certain way and your, your structure, whether it's your feet and how they fit and mesh with a certain boot type and boot manufacturer. You know, you can wear, you know, I, I wear 11 and a half or 12, depending on the, you know, what shoe I'm, shoe I'm wearing. But, you know, I can, I can put my foot in, say, a Kenetrek type boot and, and have it the same size that, that I, you know, 11 and a half or 12 in a Kenetrek, and it just doesn't fit my foot. It just doesn't feel right. It just, it just doesn't, it's not good. But I throw my foot into a Mindle and geez, oh Pete, it's like a glove and it, and it works for me. Same thing with a bow. You know, some people like short axle axles. Some people like longer axle axles. Some people like skinny little, you know, throat on, you know, the grips. Other people like a fatter grip. I mean, it all depends on how you engage and what your body, you know, type is where you'll find maybe elite bows shoot better for you. Maybe, you know, for me, it's always been PSE. I've always shot PSE, but I just love how PSE feels in my hand and how it shoots for me. Uh, But other people, it's Matthews. Other people, it's Hoyt, whatever. But shoot them. And just find the one that's right for you. Don't give. Don't worry about the hype about this brand or that brand. Who gives a shit? Because the the person on the magazine cover that you're idolizing is not out there killing the elk for you. You're the one who's going to have to carry the bow in the field, and you're the one who's going to have to send it down range. You know, send an arrow down range to to take whatever animal you're at. Why don't you pick the one that actually works in your hands the best? Same thing with boots. Who gives a crap if this is the new hotness because it has a really cool color scheme? If it rips the hell out of your heels every single time you go out in the field, do you really care? No, you do not. Okay? Same thing with handguns. I never, up until now, I really never shot the handgun prior to purchasing the handgun. I always went and did my, you know, quote unquote, thought, thought. I did my research to buy a handgun and I was like, I want to buy that one. Then I would take it home. I'd spend the money. Then I'd take it home. Then I'd run, you know, rounds through it and then they go, I mean, it'll work, but it's not, it's not really 
it's not doing what I really wanted it to do, especially from a concealed carry standpoint. There's there's things about the handguns I have that are great. There's other things that I'm like, it's just not perfected. You know what I mean? So that's why I went and shot. So I, I man, I went in there with an idea of several. And within five minutes, you know, let's say 30 minutes of me just picking up, presenting, and evaluating how that thing sits in my hands and how it how it aims, I was able to, to whittle out 80% of all the stuff I was curious about in one fell swoop. And then went walked into the range and threw some two boxes of, of ammo down range. And I mean, with it literally within, you know, five rounds of each of the, the, the pistols, I had a pretty darn good idea, whittled it down to two. And then the rest of the time was going back and forth between the two, just evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of each one. And it just flat came down to the SIG that the trigger is so crisp and it felt so good. I mean, I, I don't shoot a lot. Okay, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm, I'm not some massive pistol shooter that goes out and throws hundreds of rounds of, you know, in practice and blah, blah, blah. I don't. I just don't shoot a lot. Um, but, man, I can flat shoot that sucker. It was incredible incredible even the i shot that the m18 better in five minutes of picking it up for the first time than i shoot the the handguns i currently own that i've owned for years and have have put i can't say it's thousands of rounds but hundreds of rounds through in five minutes picking that thing up it shoots better out i mean like in intuitively it's like a a a mac you know, an iMac versus some, you know, you you pick some worthless PC computer. I mean, it just intuitive. It just fit. It was awesome. So I'm going to start playing around with a few more SIGs and just see how, uh, see where I go before I, I drop the coin on it. I may have to make another trip out there, but cannot speak highly enough uh, with Centennial Gun Club. Again, that's, that's the one with my buddy, his son works at that's their their members uh centennial gun club over there i don't think he'll you know max twinem you can talk to him and he'll get you set up on the range and he can go through some stuff there with you but uh anywhere you have the ability to go shoot the pistol shoot your you know the firearm before you purchase it man i would take a take it take advantage of it take advantage of it so, and then we went to dinner, and, and then I crashed at my buddy's place, and then I drove back, uh, did a bunch of shopping at, at Sam's Club. So, and that's the relative point. My head's all messed up, and I'm kind of feeling a little sickly, sickish today. But it could have been at dinner. It could have been at Centennial. It could have been at Sam's Club. It could have been anywhere over there. But I just thought it was funny at the concert that I have to prove that I'm healthy, but no one else does if they've got a little piece of paper that says, oh, I got jabbed. Well, you can go in. Anyway. So I got back, and uh, so now that I'm about an hour and fifteen in this, um, and we're down to these are the last. This is the last couple of days of, of the regular pheasant season here in Kansas. And again, I've talked about the fact that um, my dog is just crushing it. He's just he's in the best shape of his life, and I mean, he's got this thing dialed in where he's performing the best that he's ever performed. And so this year we were. You know, we knew, we kind of suspected that, I mean, every year that he's been out pheasant, it's just like anything. The more you do it, the the more reps you have, the better at it you get. And I mean, it's just clicking for him and he loves, he loves it. And so this year we knew we're like, man, this season's going to be epic. 
because in the past several years, our pheasant population has just been on an upward trajectory. So for many, many years out here, the pheasant population and the quail population was just abysmal. Uh, bad nest success and a, and a variety of other things. And over these last three, four years, it's just been steadily increasing. And each year just gets hands down better and better and better. And so that's what's been going on. So we, you know, we're excited, you know, the prospects of looking forward to 2020, you know, 2021 season. Yeah, well, people ask, and and I've talked a little bit about this, and I'm going to touch on a couple things here uh, for those people that are in, that were wondering what the hell is going on in some of the areas in Northwest Kansas. There, there's places where that are that seem have the appearance of. Uh, being somewhat less affected or not affected, and, and the the bird numbers seem to be okay. Maybe not on the high side of where they were maybe last year or the year before, but there's still you know at least a decent number of birds around. However, there's other places where you can't buy a bird. I mean, just good luck. There's just nothing there. They're gone, flat, gone, off the landscape. What the frickin' hell happened in one season where you go from last year? you know, going out and getting limits or, or maybe you don't kill a limit, but you have every opportunity to kill a limit because you're kicking up four, six, eight, ten, twelve 10, 12 birds on, uh, just a literal, you know, two, you know, two hour hunt in the afternoon. Um, you go out, you stand out in the CRP, you stand out in the fields and you just hear the, the roosters just, they're just going all, they're just everywhere. Um, yeah, that is not the case uh, for us this year, unfortunately. And so, if you're a non-resident, if you, if well, it doesn't even matter. There's a lot of resident hunters out here that don't know what's going on. And but if you're a non-resident, you really certainly don't because you don't, you weren't out here to see and witness. Okay, so the biggest one for us is in our in our neck of the woods. The vast majority of the good pheasant habitat is associated with what's called Conservation Reserve Program or CRP ground. So Conservation Reserve Program was a federal program uh, put together in the 80s. I believe Ronald Reagan signed it in. Basically, there are certain areas with, you know, in the past farmers were like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to farm this piece of ground. And then they break it open, you know, they, they, they start trying to grow stuff in it and they find out, man, the, the, the ground is a little stand, sandier than what really, you know, good crop ground would, would like. Or the slope is such, or the, the soil profile, whatever, the soils in that area are just erodible. They are not as productive. It's difficult to farm these pieces of ground. It's just a pain in the butt and it, and it causes resource damage. And so the federal government came up with a program in the farm bill that said, hey, what if we what if we do this? What if we pay farmers not to farm that ground? Let's give them an incentive to not farm these pieces and let's put it back into uh, what usually turns into native warm season grasses. From a habitat standpoint, if you are involved with deer, whitetail management or whitetail hunting and you like to do food plots and you like to listen to educators talking about habitat stuff, you will hear people talk about native warm season grasses, NWSG, native warm season grasses, especially in the Midwest. <clears throat> so you'll hear people talk about switchgrass a lot primarily, but they also have big blue stem, you have little blue stem, you have Indian grass, 
these are all grasses that are, <clears throat> depending on where they're growing and depending on the moisture cycle and all this other stuff, you they're going to be tall. They're going to be 18 to 2 feet tall all the way up to, hell, in, in certain areas you can have some of these that are 7 feet tall. Okay? So very, very thick cover. Now, it's great for nesting for turkeys. It's great for bedding for deer. And it's great nesting for pheasant and quail and, and a lot of other grassland birds. Well, a variety of grassland birds is that, that like that tall, taller grass component. So they plant because the reason what that's usually what's native out. That's why they call it native warm season grasses. You've heard me talk before about elk and the elk instructional stuff. We're talking about warm season grasses versus cool season grasses from a forage standpoint for elk. Um, in this case, we're talking about the warm season grasses. We're not talking about it from a standpoint of forage in this case. This case, we're talking about it from a standpoint of cover, all right? Um, nesting cover, sanctuary, hiding cover to get away from predators. So, um, and then food. You know, they all produce seeds. Uh, and so you've got food, nesting cover, and then security cover in this type of habitat. So a lot of these grounds were rolled into these federal programs to get marginal pieces of ground that were highly erodible, that were less productive than other areas, enrolled into this conservation program. So that way, you know, from a United States natural resources standpoint, we're controlling soil erosion. We're, we're controlling wind erosion. I mean, when you talk about the dust belt, you know, or the, the, the dust bowl days, when you had all that blowing dirt and everything that's because a lot of these highly erodible soils were getting tilled under and trying to be used for farm ground now the same thing can absolutely happen out here and it does from time to time but by taking some of these marginal pieces of ground and and enrolling them in these conservation programs you can kind of curtail that a little bit so from a natural resources conservation standpoint it works to conserve soil from water erosion. It works to conserve soil from wind erosion, but it also does provide some really good wildlife habitat, both game species and non-game species uh, of and, and is insects as well, uh, and birds and, and you name it. So from a conservation standpoint, they're really nice. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great program. Now we can have an argument about subsidies and federal government paying landowners to do this or that. We can absolutely have that conversation uh, at some point uh, because I think it's, it's a relevant conversation. The principle of the matter of should the federal government be you know, making payments to blah, 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 subsidizing farmers for doing this, that, or the other thing. Okay, we can have that debate. The reality is, whether you, whether you want, it doesn't matter. The reality is in many of the areas, these chunks of ground, these CRP fields do hold the best pheasant hunting, quail hunting, hold some really great deer. They provide some really great nesting habitat and winter habitat for turkeys. And there's a lot of wildlife species that benefit from them. All right. So they do a good thing on the landscape, whether you know, regardless how you feel about the subsidy payment. Now, here's the thing. Out here, we are in a dry climate. We are much drier than even folks, say, 30 minutes north of us, 30 minutes south of us, 30 minutes west of us, and darn sure, 30 minutes east of us. 
we are in a little pocket where we normally get maybe 20 to 24 inches of, of precipitation a year. Um, but these past couple of years, it's even been drier than that. And this year was brutal dry. And that's going to be a point of, of issue here in a second. But the relevant point being is, is you'll see people talk about CRP and they're talking about it from Eastern Kansas, or they're talking about uh, Missouri. They're talking about Iowa. They're talking about, you know, Eastern Nebraska or whatever. And you're seeing some of these CRP, these, these switchgrass fields that are, you know, six, five, six, seven feet tall or whatever. We do not grow that. On the, uh, the biggest grass that we have out here oftentimes is either big blue stem or Indian grass. It'll, it'll send up the tallest seed head. In a lot of the ground that we have, even the most mature CRP fields, native warm season grass fields, most of the time, the tallest we're going to get is six foot. And that's, again, that's the seed head. That's not the vegetative biomass. So as a grass, on these warm season grasses, if you think about how your your yard grows, if you let a little chunk of your yard grow wild, you're going to get the grass to grow, but then it's going to send up that seed head, that, that little shoot that goes up above the grass. It's going to throw that flower out and it's going to go to seed. If it goes to seed, then the plant's like, screw it, I'm done, and I'll just stay. And it doesn't really grow much after that. Um, it might throw, you know, resources into the roots and maintaining roots, but it really doesn't put any more vegetative growth on the leaf material after it throws the seed head up. So a lot of times the seed head is the, that's the most important part of the plant. That's the, the plant, from the plant's perspective, if it had a perspective, it is to reproduce. It's to, to get that seed head up and high enough to where it can get pollinated and spread its seed. So it's going to grow leafy material in the spring and early summer just to get some energy and just get the engine of that plant rolling. As that engine of the plant gets rolling, you got all that leafy biomass, it gets to a certain point and then the, the plant is like, good, we've got enough resources, let's go. And it's going to send up that seed head. Once it sends up that seed head again, when it gets fertilized and it goes to seed, pretty much the rest of the plant just goes on, you know, stasis and it just puts resources in the root structure and then as the fall and winter roll in it goes dormant again and then it just repeats the cycle okay so the seed head is what oftentimes it wants to send up depending on how much moisture you have can also de determine when it sends that seed head up all right and this is important here in a second but so for us this year it was extremely dry later on in the summer but what happened in the spring i think is even even more important. So here's what happened out here. When the conservation reserve program is when a landowner wants to enroll in it, say I've got a 50 acre chunk of ground. It's a pain in my butt. It's erodible. It's a pain that the terrain is such where it's hard to get in the, the equipment in and out of there without messing things up. So I want to enroll that piece of ground. Okay. Well, it's not a year to year. It's a, it's like a 10 or 15 year debate. It's a multi-year, let's just say a 10-year contract, okay? So the landowner has to agree for the next 10 years, this is what they're going to do. They're going to they're going to go in and they're going to drill in, they're going to create, they're going to they're going to reclaim this area and they're going to plant it back to a diverse native warm season grassland. Now, the the big ones that I like are little blue stem, big blue stem, switchgrass and Indian grass. Those are the ones I like to see, the grasses anyway that I like to see out there because they have a diverse structure. They, there's, it's awesome. You'll hear people talk about putting uh side oats, grandma in that mix. And then a bunch of Forbes and 
broad leaves and flowers and that type of stuff. That's fine. Broad leaves, flowers, you know, all that stuff. Good. Go for it. Throw it in there. You know, out, you know, dry land alfalfa and that, you know, just diversify that mix. Great. If, if I ever have the choice of creating a mix, the one thing that will never be in there is side oats grandma. I hate side oats grandma. Side oats grandma is very low. It's, it's a much lower growing uh, grass and from a range management standpoint, it's called it's considered what is as an increaser species, meaning over time it will increase its footprint on the landscape, whereas other plants will get choked out by it or displaced by it. And it is especially good at colonizing and doing well in harsh conditions that the other plants don't do well in, which means when you have a drought year and the other big, big plants don't have enough moisture to really grow big and tall and choke the side oats grandma out, the side oats grandma will gain ground. They'll gain several inches of growth and they'll just start to march across the landscape and they'll they'll become, they can, they can, can become dominant. So, but usually side oats grandma is short enough to where it's, you're not going to hide a pheasant in it. You're not going to hide a quail in it. The beautiful thing is it does produce a lot of seed from a from a, a bird utilization from a food standpoint. That's fine, but that's the problem. It creates it produces a lot of seed, and that seed is viable, and that seed will germinate, and it'll just keep increasing. So I don't like side oats grandma. But the big ones that people pay attention to are switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stem, and little blue stem. All right. So the landowner wants to roll his piece of ground in there. A lot of times they're going to say, okay, you have to drill this stuff back into these native warm season grasses. Okay, great. Boom. First year, it starts coming up. Second year, it gets a little thicker. By the third year of good growing season, growing conditions, you've got some really good mature plants and it's putting up some biomass and you've got some just great cover. Now, the thing is, is also, I guess, let me just segue real quick. Now, it's also going to depend on what the soil structure is, how deep the soils are, and what the moisture cycle is going to be on how much growth you get. But let's just table that for a second. Okay, but the thing is, is it you you enrolled it. Well, those enrollment periods, the, the federal government announces, ah, we are opening up enrollment for CRP at such and such a time. Well, when the program just first started, well, I guess it doesn't matter. Just to cut to the chase. You will see where a lot of landowners enroll their properties. Let, let's say 10 years ago, all of a sudden the federal government through the Farm Bureau, farm Bill, Congress authorized uh, a payment of $50 per acre of payment for CRP. Whereas the previous enrollment payment was maybe $30 per acre. So all of a sudden, you know, you hear people talking about, oh, I'm getting paid $30 an acre to keep this in native warm season grasses. Where the other landowners might be like, well, shoot, even on crappy years, if I try to grow corn or wheat or whatever else on there, I'm, I'm making a hundred bucks. I'm making 60 to a hundred bucks an acre. So why would I, why would I put it in if I'm, if I'm make, let's say I'm making 60 bucks, $60 of profit per acre on this really crap ground. Well, then why would I take it out of crap production and enroll it in CRP? If, if it's only going to make me 30, I'm only going to make half. It, it's worth it for me to continue to try to farm this. But then all of a sudden Congress says, we'll authorize a payment of $50 per acre. Well, hold on a minute. 
you know, I'm eking out a $60 an acre profit on average, which means some years maybe I'm making $70 an acre profit, but other years I'm only making 40 or 50, maybe 40 or $50 profit on that ground. And you know what? I keep messing up my my equipment. I keep, it's a pain in the butt. I'm at, you know I'm losing soil. It's it's getting erosion channels, and I got to keep going out there and cleaning them up and smoothing things out. You know, for fifty dollars an acre, hell, that's worth it because I'm still making almost what I was making farming it. But now I have none of the costs associated with the maintenance of, of the of the field and, and erosion and everything else. So all of a sudden, because Congress changed the enroll the, the the dollar figures, everybody's like, well, hell yeah, I want in. And so you have this pulse where all of a sudden a lot of people enroll more acres. So in one fell swoop, in one year or two years, all of a sudden you have this massive uptick in the number of acres in CRP that's being enrolled and that the, the massive uptick in all this good habitat that's out there. Well, again, it's a ten, say it's a 10-year contract that you've agreed to. It all start, everybody started at the same time. Well, what's that mean? Everybody's contract ends at the same time. So if you want to re-enroll, your first contract ends then you meet with the federal government, the, 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 you know, farm folks, and just you go meet with them and they come out and they look at things, or, or at least even on paper, they look at your operation. They look at what Congress has authorized under the, the farm bill for the conservation reserve program and other programs. And they say, okay, well, we can, we either can continue to pay you that 50 bucks an acre or whatever your contract was paid out at. Or maybe they say, eh, this year we can't pay that much, but we can we can pay, say, 45 an acre or we can pay 40 bucks an acre. And that landowner can evaluate. They're like, well, do I want to keep it in or do I just want to take it out? You know, if it's worth it, eh, help, just keep it in, just re-enroll into the program. And so here we go, round two or round three or whatever, however many iterations of, of CRP that landowner has rolled that piece of ground into. But when you re-enroll it, part of that, especially in, in more recent years, the um, the biologists that are in charge of, well, I say that, okay, we got, you've got biologists and then you also have bureaucrats, okay, in charge of federal programs. Over the past several years, biologists with the federal government have been saying, well, you know what, we want to diversify what we have out in these. We want it to provide better wildlife habitat. We want it to provide better environmental conservation, wildlife and bird conservation. So we want to diversify the species of grasses, forbs, uh, broadleaf type of stuff that's in there. So legumes. So when they re-enroll um, their contract. And in certain contracts, it's already written into the contracts where there are management activities that are either allowed on a periodic basis or they are required on a certain basis. In some contracts, you're required to burn it every three to five years or whatever, or you're required to graze cattle on it. Or maybe what it is is, okay, on every fifth, you know, on on three years or fifth fifth year or whatever, you can you can if you want to go in and put cattle on it or graze it. Depending on how your contract is written, there are either forced management things that can be done, 
that have to be done. Or you can opt into and in, enjoy, you know, grazing the ground or haying the ground or burning the ground or whatever just to, to increase uh, growth and the, and the health of that grassland, okay? Each one is different. All right. Some regions love burning. Other regions don't want to touch burning with a 10-foot pole, and so they say you just got to go graze it. Okay, Every contract is going to be somewhat different. Regional contracts generally uh, are similar. Well, I, I, I say all that for this. This year was this, well, 2021. End of 2020 into 2021. That's when a lot of contracts came up. A lot of contracts were due. And a lot of people decided to go ahead. Now, some people, because the money was not the same as it has been in the year, in several years, there were a, there's thousands of acres of CRP where the landowners were like, no, I'm not going to re-enroll my ground into the Conservation Reserve Program because, quite honestly, right now, I can get more out of it by leasing it for cattle or swathing it and bailing it and selling the bales or you know what? Screw it. I'm going to disc it under and I'm going to farm it again because new farming practices, new equipment, I actually can get in there and do stuff better than before. So I'm not going to get in bed with the federal government. I'm not going to re-enroll my property. And so I'm going to let it go out of Conservation Reserve. Likewise, there are some that, you know, the federal government looked at some and said, you know what? That ground actually, you know, you had it enrolled for a while. We're not actually going to, we're not going to enroll that type of soil structure anymore. We're not going to enroll that type of aspect or slope or whatever anymore. We're not going to, we're not going to re-enroll that piece of your ground. But over here, over here, if you want to put this other piece of yours in, we'll, we'll, we can enroll that one. So depending on where you were, there were a lot of landowners that either A, just took their stuff completely right out and just... It's no longer in that program. They're no longer getting paid by the federal government to preserve that ground as far, or conserve that, not preserve, conserve that ground as uh, native warm season grasses. Or there was other landowners that said, okay, well, I can't do, I, I have these three properties, A, B, and C. The feds won't enroll C, but they will enroll D and E. They might be smaller pieces, but the, the total acres is the same. Fine. We'll re-enroll A and B, and I will now enroll D and E into this program. We'll pull C out of it. Okay, so there's a little bit of play on what, what grounds went where. To my disgust, the powers that be decided that this year, in order to re-enroll your ground, you were forced into a management protocol, a management action on that ground. And so if I had lands A, B, and C that I wanted that were already enrolled, I wanted to re-enroll them. They're already existing grasslands, okay? Warm season grass, good habitat for pheasant, quail, deer, turkey, everything else. They're already in. And I want to re-enroll them. The feds said, okay, everyone, you are forced to either burn it, swath it and bale it, I mean, cut it down right like a golf course and then bale all that biomass up and remove all that biomass or run a disc through it and knock down all that, that chaff and all that thatch and everything. Because it, 
Now, don't get me wrong. This this type of management action is necessary for the health of the grassland. Those grasslands do need to have some sort of disturbance on them periodically to make sure that they stay healthy. So this management action is not a bad thing. It's actually necessary for the health of the system. However, here's the dumbass thing. You don't do 100% of even your property's stuff in the same year, let alone hundreds of landowners stretched across tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres across an entire region. So when the programs were rolling in and everybody all jumped in on the federal program at the same time, we had this massive swell of all of a sudden this just gargantuan mosaic. Imagine a 30,000 foot view, Google Earth view on the landscape where from one side of your page, it's is, you know, from, from left to right on your screen, it's 50 miles by 50 miles. Okay. And you look at all the little squiggly puzzle pieces of, of land, you know, of properties out there throughout that entire thing is this, this, this mosaic of all these checkerboard, these little picket and pockets of these native warm season grass pockets of CRP. Well, all those landowners enrolled at the same time, it, provided this massive upswell in the available habitat for wildlife. But now all those same landowners are now at the end of their contract. And what did the feds do? They told every one of those freaking landowners, you have to all do the exact same damn thing at the same time. And you have to do it with a hundred percent of the ground that you want to re-enroll. And, oh, by the way, we're going to do it right there. The just a couple weeks prior to the nesting season. Well, it doesn't matter if we're talking about burning it off. It doesn't matter if we're talking about disking it up. It doesn't matter if we're talking about swathing and bailing. The whole point behind the management action is to knock everything down and start over, essentially. The root structure is still going to be largely there. Just the up above ground biomass. You mean you, you know the, 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 the biomass that provides the actual sanctuary cover for, for pheasants and quail? The, the, the above ground biomass that actually provides the nesting sites underneath there hidden away from predators in that that biomass that that those nesting sites for pheasant and quail you know you know the same biomass that's above ground that provides the good cover for the the turkey nests the same biomass that provides good cover for deer fawning all that yeah all of it goes bye-bye it's gone it's removed from the landscape. Every acre on landowner A, landowner B, landowner C, not just my landowners lost 100% of all of our warm season grass nesting and, and security cover. Every one around us for miles had to do the exact same thing. We went from some of the best nesting cover in we we went from having thousands upon thousands of acres of high quality nesting habitat that had been in place these past couple years while we were also seeing great springtime rain cycles that were were conducive to high nest success so we had great cover 
with great nesting success in the spring, the pheasant quail population was steadily climbing. In in, in the end of 2020 to the beginning of 2021, and many, many acres in March and early April of 2021, every acre of all that CRP was plowed under, burned off, or it was swathed and bailed, cut and bailed and bales pulled off. So that's what happened out here. We lost everything in one fell swoop. Because in our country, if it's not planted in this type of warm season grass, if it's another grassland, it's probably going to be grazed. And you're not going to have that structure. Now, you can have still some pretty good, again, every property is different. (coughs) Your soil structures are different. Your moisture cycles are different. That's going to be coming up here in a minute. More, uh, more on that in a minute. So not every every area is the same. So you can have this, this conservation reserve program piece of ground that's just absolutely incredible for good cover and nesting and food and everything else. It could be right next to a chunk of grassland that is actively grazed every year by cattle. And that piece of ground is actually pretty good as well, depending on the the, the, the juxtaposition of other habitat characteristics and, and uh, terrain and everything else. And what the stocking rate of the cattle and how the how the, the landowners manage their cattle rotation and stuff like that. So you can have some, some CRP ground next to some really good native ground that is actually used. But you also can find chunks of native or, or of, of CRP ground that is literally an isolated island in the middle of a gargantuan swath of, of hundreds, if not thousands, of acres of ag ground that's 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 disturbed and kept clean, especially now with no-till farming that's kept clean. There is no habitat on any ground around some of these pockets. The only available habitat, the only sanctuary, the only place to survive is in these CRP pockets. Everything else around them is death. There might be food. Maybe it's cut corn or cut milo or whatever, winter wheat or whatever. There's food, but they but they live in the CRP and then they venture out to go feed and then they come back to the CRP because that's where the sanctuary is. Well, that, that just got mowed down. So now... You have zero sanctuary. You have zero nesting. You 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 have zero survivability. It's like go just take a pheasant and go take it and put it out in the Walmart parking lot. Because that's what it looks like. We had a hundred percent of all of our CRP acres on our property owners and all of our neighbors for miles upon miles around. All of our CRP gone. Bailed up. Now, you say, okay, well. It's it's just one it's just a it's just one it's okay it's just one year it's it's a blip okay one year that happened you're gonna take a hit but it's gonna grow back okay it's gonna it's gonna grow right back and you're gonna you're gonna have some good cover there so it's fine next year you know you 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 have one year that's bad then the next year boom okay it grows back up and you're you're back and rock and rolling uh-huh. uh huh if you have the moisture if you have the rain to support good vigorous vegetative growth because remember it's a warm season grass when does it grow it grows in the summer when it's hot it needs what oh that's right we've talked about this before with elk what do native warm season grasses really like whether we're talking blue grandma grass in arizona in colorado and new mexico or whether we're talking about switchgrass blue stems and indian grass here 
monsoon moisture. We need that monsoonal flow to come out of the, of the Pacific Ocean, come across the, the southwest and roll right into those afternoon thunderstorms that roll across the prairies. We didn't have that this year. We had a pretty decent wet spring. It was wet enough. We had good soil moisture going into the spring. But we also ran out of any moisture falling from the sky largely in June. But what we also had in June was 98, 102, 105, 98, 98, 99, 102, 98, 105. Week after week after week of high 90s and low 100s. Yeah, why don't we throw some wind in there as well? So you want to tell me how much growth you're going to get on plants? You just took all of it off. It looks like your 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 backyard. You took all that vegetation off. It starts to grow back. And then we roll into one of the most brutal droughts we've been into. Coupled with some just brute, just just horrible, horrible high temperatures. You we and the other thing. So we shut off the moisture. But the other flip side of that is depending on the soil structure, if you have deep, deep soil that can hold good moisture. These, you know, Indian grass, switchgrass, blue stems, their root mass below ground can extend many, many feet below ground, okay? If you have deep soils, deep, deep soil structure, especially soil structure that allows really good, deep, vigorous root growth, you can have some of these plants that'll have these roots that go down five, six, seven, eight feet deep down underground. Well, Way, 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 way down in there, you might still be able, you know, tap into some some decent, decent enough soil moisture. So that plant, even though above ground, up on top, and then the top part of the soil layers, you're not getting a lot of moisture, and it's brutally hot. The plant can pull from really, really down deep, and still put on some decent growth. Likewise, if you have it, let's say that there's an ag field uh, on the uphill side of where the CRP pocket is and uh there's a little swale there's a little depression in that field and it just kind of anything if if rain hits that field it just kind of flows down that depression and then it rolls right into that crp field again they'll a lot of times that's why they will put the crp uh enrolled properties where they do them because they want to trap that erode that erodible soil well if you've got more rainwater flowing in the channel and dumping into a, per, a particular portion of your CRP field well you're going to have higher soil moisture in those little channels and so you can get some some really good growth and and some of our properties out here we were in one today that if you didn't know better if depending on where you were walking around on the on the landscape if you didn't know but you would have no clue that it was it was cut this year because the 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 cover bounced back so well however the reason why some soils are erodible is because it's rocky or it's shallow. If you have shallow soils where you means that maybe there's only a couple feet between the top of the soil and where you start hitting shale or rock or some some other profile that that root that plant roots can't get down through. It doesn't matter that the plant has the ability to put a root structure down 6 8 10 feet below ground. You don't have the soil depth to do that. So the, so the 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 roots are just naturally shallow. 
now you run out of water very, very quickly. And so it doesn't matter that, well, you know, over time it'll grow back. Sure, it'll grow back. But this year, we might have, in some places, you've got three to six, maybe nine inches of growth. That's it. That is it. You can't hide. If it's really thick nine inches, maybe you could hide a pheasant under there or quail under there. But if you've got six inches of, of spotty cover, you're not hiding a bird in there at all. You're darn, you're darn sure not going to hide a turkey in it or a deer. So right before nesting season, we came in and wiped out all of our good habitat and forced every critter that was relying on that, which again, we were, we were rising, we were riding a, this wave of great production over these past several years. So we had built up this population of birds that was just phenomenal. Well, now all of a sudden there's zero habitat that they can either go into, or if the only other habitat they have is exceptionally marginal where there's very little cover. Oh, and, uh, by the way, um, our predator populations are doing quite well. Raccoon numbers are through the ever-living freaking roof right now. They're plague proportions out here. So now, right before nesting season, we took all the high-quality nesting cover out. The birds peel off into these, you know, wood lots and creek bottoms that are, you know, cheatgrass and, you know, just hemp and crap, very poor, uh, long-term hiding sanctuary cover. You puke them into these narrow corridors. The birds are still going to try to nest. But meanwhile, now because of all the CRP is gone, guess where all the predators are? The predators get pushed out and they go in the same places that the pheasant and the quail and the turkeys and everybody else had to puke out into. And guess what? We have absolute abysmal nest success. Oh, and why, why don't we just throw a drought on top of that with excessive heat to where, yeah, no, there's no food and no shade and no moisture and no humidity for bugs and insects that, you know, baby pheasant chicks would like to eat or baby quail chicks would like to eat or baby turkey chicks would like. Now, I can't say turkey. That's a different discussion. We did have a phenomenal turkey success this year, nesting success, but I think that is because turkeys have this excuse me, ability to really be, de- they, they, they will re-nest if they have to, and they can be very successful on some of their later re-nesting attempts, especially when crop uh, like corn and soybean and some other crops in winter wheat start getting up high enough to where the row crop for a turkey, I'm not talking about for a pheasant or a quail, but for a turkey, ends up being a decent area for nesting. So our turkeys did okay with our nest success this year. But the 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 quail and, you know, quail also. Quail have the ability to use grassland areas, but also some of these brushy marginal areas. And they're camouflaged exceptionally well. And they're a lot smaller. So they can hide and they can tuck into some of these places where a pheasant just really doesn't have the ability to, number one. Number two, keep in mind, a male... Uh, a male bobwhite quail and a female bobwhite quail are pretty darn similar in their coloration except their head color, which is black and white on a male. A hen pheasant versus a rooster are completely different. You might argue that in sparse cover, you can get a hen pheasant who just looks like a pile of leaves. She's that mottled brown and, and black and gray, okay? She can hide in some sparse cover a hell of a lot better than a rooster uh, that is twice her size and brightly colored because that's the problem with predators out here. We've got coyotes. We've got bobcats. 
like a lot of Bobcats. We've got the Nest Predators eight ways from Sunday, but hell, this past year, this past spring, one of our we were sitting there turkey hunting. We had a raccoon come out of a cut cornfield in the morning, approach our turkey decoy spread, and literally stalked the hen decoy and then pounced on and knocked over my hen decoy. It, it was a raccoon actively hunting turkeys and actively pounced on the, the decoy trying to kill the turkey and getting a turkey breakfast. Um, so you've got skunks, possums, raccoons, bobcats up the yin-yang, coyotes up the yin-yang. But oh yeah, by the way, our uh, owl population, great horned owl population, through the roof. All of our hawks at that time of year, this is when we have a, a, a significant number of harriers, red tails, rough leggets. You, we've got so many different species of hawks that are through here. But remember what you just did. You just removed all that other cover. So where are the hawks hunting? They're hunting in those marginal areas as well, right where all those pheasants are. Again, you might be able to fool a hawk's eyes by you know having a pheasant go tuck under a little pocket of, of vegetation and sit still for a little bit. But hawks and eagles see color, remember? They're birds. They see color. You're going to hide a brightly colored rooster pheasant in sparse ground the hell you are and they just got they just got slaughtered this year slaughtered between the habitat loss administrative is that we're not talking about we had a catastrophic environmental event that, that took all our habitat no we're not talking in some cases, some landowners opted to remove themselves out of the program and on some properties, they did convert those CRP acres back into either grazing lands or tillable acres. We did lose thousands of acres of habitat out of the program this past year. However, from what I'm hearing is we also enrolled thousands of acres of new property, different property into the program this year. So in the future, it'll be good again. But because I think of very misguided, I don't know if it was purposeful. I don't know if it was just naivety. I don't know if it just ignorance. I don't know if it was, I don't know, incompetent. I don't know. I don't know. But as a biologist, I was absolutely disgusted to see the federal agencies that it, and there's, this doesn't matter. There are multiple federal agencies that are involved with either managing or monitoring or involved with CRP program. And you can't tell me that the biologists were not able to tell the bean counters, uh, how about we not take 100% of all our habitat off the shelf? Like, how about we not go into this beautiful dining room that has all this beautiful food, all this beautiful place settings? Over the years, we've built up this beautiful dining room set, and we've got a great chef, and they've prepared this beautiful banquet for us. How about we just not go in there and just grab the tablecloth and just slowly drag all that shit off the table and just smash it on the floor? How about if you feel like you need to drag a tablecloth, how about maybe we do, I don't know, landowner Joe Schmedley. You have, let's say, 100 acres in CRP. 
No, let's make it easy. 75 acres in CRP in three 25-acre chunks. There's a 25-acre CRP field there. There's a 25-chunk there. And then there's another 25-chunk there. Okay, you want to re-enroll your program? Excellent. You have to engage in a management activity on each of those properties within the next year or next three years. So on, so we're going to take this 75 acres. This is chunk A, chunk B, and C. Okay, you want to re-enroll? Excellent. All right, then you, on paper, you are signing your life away. You are agreeing to that you will, in year one, in 2021, you're going to go in and you're going to burn or you're going to swath and bail or you're going to disc CRP chunk A. B and C sit just as they are and provide habitat. Chunk A is going to grow, however it's going to grow, whatever it's going to do this year based on rain and soil, pro- blah, 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 whatever it is, it's going to it's going to bounce back. It's going to start to bounce back. And then in 2022, Farmer Joe Schmedley, you are required to go into CRP Chunk B and do either burn it, swath it and bale it, or disc it. And you're going to leave Chunk A and Chunk C alone, and they're going to stay just as is. And then in 2023, you're going to go into chunk C and you're going to do that one of those all over again. And so now, by the time he gets to chunk C, chunk A has had two years of growth. We're now back to providing good nesting cover. Chunk B, depending on the soil, depending on, depending on the rain and the soils and everything else, who knows how good that is, but at least you've got some freaking growth there. At least you scattered it and, and, and diversified it. And oh, by the way, you got landowner, landowner A, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 27, 64, 87. You, you have all these other landowners on the landscape that could have done the exact same damn thing. And we could have, we could have staggered the the footprint of that disturbance across the landscape in a randomized manner where we would have maintained our nesting habitat, we would have maintained our sanctuary cover, we would have maintained all the benefits of what the freaking program was supposed to do in the freaking first place. No, 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 no. We're going to administratively say, you know what? Take a dry erase board and just go, and just going to wipe it all off. Bye-bye, gone in one fell swoop and quite honestly on a lot of, a lot of these it all happened within one month gone and then we just so happened to be to follow all that up with one of the worst droughts that we've had at the same point where our predator population was riding high because of the high population of game birds that we, and deer that we had in these areas administratively as a biologist it's disgusting and I'm in, I I am I'm not even embarrassed because it's not anything that I can be embarrassed about as a private private lands manager. It, it's 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 absolutely appalling to me that somebody allowed a prof- somebody allowed that to happen. That was bullshit. Excuse my language. So there you go. So when now the the people that live out here saw all that happening. There are some that maybe just didn't put two and two together, and they figure, oh well, the, you know, they'll, you know, the birds will go somewhere else, and they'll nest somewhere else, and they'll be fine. And in some properties, that's the case. Like I said, depending on the grazing regime uh, on some of these other grasslands, and, and depending on what the uh, quote unquote waste ground out here, you, you've got grass, you've got grazing land, you've got CR. If you look at a, a sale bill and a piece of uh, paper, um, 
you're you're going to look at your tillable ag. This is your crop fields. You're going to have grassland areas that are good for grazing. And then you'll have CRP acres because those are enrolled in a federal program. And then you'll have what people just call waste ground. It's just, you know, those places where maybe it's not big enough to graze. Uh, the gra- it, the it, Maybe it's trees and brushy corridors and plum thickets and all that type. It's just, quote unquote, what they call from an agriculture standpoint, waste ground. Well, on some of that waste ground, it's freaking awesome habitat. And so maybe, yes, maybe the CRP was cut and the animals just bailed off into that quote unquote waste ground that was actually okay. Or maybe they went off into that, that, that cattle pasture that the landowners just didn't graze last year. And so there was some good biomass out there and there was some good cover. And maybe they just only have a handful of cows and maybe they just do rest rotation. Maybe they're really good cattle grazers. And, and so the, there's a lot of diversity to the grassland out there and there's a lot of biomass left. However, there's a lot of landowners out here that they lease the ground and they're like, well, we get it from May 1st to November 1st. And so we're going to turn cattle out in there and we'll just graze it until there's no more grass out there. And then we'll move them to another pasture. And that may be the case. And there is nothing for animals to puke over into. So yeah, depending on where you were, depending on, on, on where, if you've been hunting, you, you can see wildly different things, but across the board, the, the general consensus is our numbers went from absolutely awesome these past couple of years to they're gone. They're just, they're just flat. gone. I mean, like almost flat gone to where I can go walk some of our best chunks of CRP that normally we're kicking up a dozen, 15, 20, 30 plus birds on a, just a, a short walk in the afternoon to where you're lucky if you find one rooster and you're, you might find two or three hens. That's it. The rest of them are dead. Oh, because be, by the way, uh, the other flip side of that is, remember, uh, in this neck of the woods, we are in a migration corridor for raptors, hawks. Okay? Well, a lot of different species of hawks will go up to Canada for the summer, up in the northern part of the United States and in Canada for the summer, but then they winter down in the coast or South America if they have to. What people don't realize is there's a lot of hawks that are that that will take advantage of warmer weather and they only push as far south as they need to. They're not going to continue all the way down to South America. Some of some of them. And some of them are just a species thing and some of them it has to do with just individual personalities of the animal because they have individual personalities and they have different proclivities. So You'll have some birds that just choose if it's a nice warm winter. Why fly all the freaking way down to, you know, South Texas when I can stop at, you know, Kansas? Because the weather's warm, there's no snow, and there's plenty of food. Why continue on? Well, that I'm telling you these past couple of years, we know that we have some climate issues, changing climate. Due to climate change, I'm not talking about the the doomsday scenario, but we are seeing changes in our weather pattern. We are having warmer, less you know, warmer winters and less precipitation in our in some of our winters. So we've got a lot of hawks that are around us right now that normally are gone out of here by now. They're they're f- way further south, but they haven't need to move to move out because the weather's been so nice that we've had almost no snow and there's plenty of food around. So from avian predators to terrestrial predators, they just can't catch a break because we, in some areas, we just still don't have adequate cover. 
Now, in the other areas, we've got some really good cover, but they took that initial hit in the summer, late spring, summer, and early fall, to where it doesn't matter that we have good cover now. The population was just wiped this past summer, and now it's just going to take either, you know, either people raise birds and turn them loose. And we can, this is another discussion we can have at another a different time, you know, raise birds and turn them loose, loose and try to jumpstart the population and get them going again. Or in some areas, you just wait and let the native population, you know, this year we'll have one rooster survive. And maybe there's two hens in this particular area. Lord pray that those two hens have a successful nest and, and they have a clutch of, let's just say eight chicks each. And, you know, they raise five of them each and so by next fall we've got the originals and then 10 more new ones and then the year after that maybe we can get things going and maybe we have another good nest success and we can double that or triple that or whatever but in a lot of areas the numbers are, are stupidly low and that's why because if you're a non-resident hunter you come out here every fall to go pheasant hunting you didn't know that if if the landowner didn't tell you if you're just hunting walk-in access, how many of you knew that we actually mowed down all of our CRP acres and it went to literally looking like your lawn? Gone. And then, how thick is it? There's a lot of people that are driving down the road and they're like, oh, it looks like good CRP. Why? Because you're seeing the seed heads. What did I say before? That plant is going to grow in the spring and it's going to get a certain amount of biomass of, of leafy vegetation. But once it, it, it can do one of two things, if it's growing vigorously, it will continue to grow and then it'll throw up that seed head upon completion of a certain amount of growth. But if you stress that plant and it realizes, man, I'm running out of water already. This is getting ridiculous. I don't know if I'm going to survive. It can actually throw that seed head up early. It'll stop utilizing resources for vegetative growth and it just automatically sends that seed head sky high. And so from a from the side, from looking at it out from the from your car or truck window, you look across a field and it looks like it's three foot tall. The seed heads, the seed stalks are all three foot tall. But when you walk out in there, you can see the tops of your boots. In normal years where you have to be careful with your dog because you can lose your dog in the sea of grass. Now you literally can watch your dog range anywhere and everywhere out in that field because there's not enough grass to even cover your small dog's back. There just isn't a lot of biomass on the ground to protect especially roosters, brightly colored animals that have nothing really to hide in. And it doesn't matter if some of the field actually has patchy growth. I've got some, uh, some of our fields have really good patchy growth. But again, if you've got a 50-acre chunk... Let's say you have a 50-acre chunk and there was 50 birds in there. That 50-acre chunk last year had 50 acres of great habitat across every every acre of that of that field. Well, now it was mowed down and bailed up, so there was no habitat left. So where did those 50 birds go? They bailed off into really crappy marginal habitat. Let's say half of them were killed by predators in this this summer. And we miraculously, somehow, we had 20 of, uh, 25 of them survive till fall. Okay, that's fine. We have 50 acres, 25 birds. But depending on the moisture and the soil profile, if all we have is five acres of really good, tall, thick stuff, and we have 
45 acres of crap, low-lying stuff, where are those birds going to pile into? Are they going to stay out in the middle of the crappy field? No. 25 birds now are going to try to pile into five acres. Uh, do you think the, the predators are going to figure that out? Do you think the predators are going to be able to work through that five acres every day, all day and night, repeatedly over and 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 over again and not stumble upon 23 of those birds? Sad state of affairs, people. It sucks. It just, I just sit there and I watch it. And again, I call this, this is, this is a catastrophic administrative loss of habitat. It did not need to happen at all at all at some point someone uh, on the food the federal food chain made a shitty call and it cost us our bird population in many areas this year some of some of our properties there's nothing on there's literally nothing on other properties have a handful and we've been going out and, and just walking the dog and seeing what we can do um We'll talk, you know, as things progress here next year, I'm, I'm literally evaluating what I want to do for our upland bird habitat and our upland bird operations here in the future um, for, for next year. Because right now, uh, we've, we've got to go through winter, and we still don't have snow cover. Uh, we still don't have really good hiding cover. So, I mean, I, the, the onslaught of mortality of our birds is going to continue right into spring. And then when we have the, the, the migratory wave of birds coming back up from you know, winter areas down south, we're going to have a, another wave of, of hawks and raptors come through that's just going to exacerbate it. Um, and we are still in a brutal drought cycle. We are not scheduled by long-term forecast. We are not scheduled to get out of it uh, at least until early to mid-summer. And it's not, it, we're not, it, it's not saying that we will get out of it late summer the forecasts only go till midsummer and the the forecasts just don't show us coming out of this out of this at all. So right now we are so dry that we have landowners that are actively changing their crop rotation, their their crop strategy because the 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 crops that they normally want to grow there's not going to be enough moisture for it. The the soil structure is so dry right now that if we don't have significant wet weather to recharge those soils like over an extended period, there's just not even going to be enough moisture to grow a crop. So they're having to, they're they're moving towards crops like milo, which are so, grain sorghums, which are planted later in the summer, and they can handle really drought style conditions. So we may not even be able to roll into the spring and expect a good moisture recharge to jumpstart the remaining CRP. You know, here we are, year one. We have some growth in our CRP now. If we had a good soil moisture recharge this spring, we could see a really good, vigorous spring growth on, you know, not spring, well, not early spring, late spring, early summer growth from those warm season grasses where we could get a real boost on the overall cover. If that moisture doesn't come, the vegetation is going to just sit there in a dormant state like it is. It's, it, it'll green, it'll it'll come out of dormancy, but it's not going to have vigor, vigorous growth. It's just going to sit there and do the same thing it did last year and have just pathetic growth. So there you go. I mean, some for so you guys coming from out of state, driving down the road, wanting to hit walk-in access. If you if you've struggled this year, 
um, or if it just was not even close to what you expected or what you've seen in years past, that's why. Um, it just sucks, man. It just, it just, it, it's a kick in the freaking nuts, especially like I said, when you see what we had, we had had, you know, ten years ago, five years ago, where, you know, the population was just flat low and and not a lot of people were coming out here to pheasant hunt because there just wasn't the birds. And then starting about five years ago. Every year, it just, I won't say exponentially increased, but my gosh, it, you know, let's just say it doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again. You just, well, I guess that's exponential growth, but let's just say it steadily grew um, to where these past couple years were just awesome. Just on the ground that was managed and, and not raped and pillaged by everybody and their brother's uncle just shooting everything under the sun. But regardless, the numbers were there and it was awesome. Um, and that's not even, and that's not even talking about the changes. I mean, we haven't even talked about the changes. and I'm going to save this conversation for the discussion of turkeys coming up, um, here in the future. That's not even talking about the changes in crop rotation, um, clean farming, the use of, of herbicides, uh, and everybody wants to cast stones at landowners for, for, you know, what they're doing these days. Well, it's a catch 22. They're, 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 the, the world needs more food. The world wants more food. So our farmers are asked to grow more food. Technology allows them to grow more food, but and and we're doing it in no-till and, and some really good ways, but with that comes changes in farming practices that require changes in how the fields are managed, and then all of a sudden you throw in weeds that are herbicide-resistant weeds, and now all of a sudden the farmer really has limited options on what they can do um, to combat weeds in their fields and so and, and that's the geez okay there's it, i don't want to go too long the other thing that's going to be interesting this year and this is going to be very relevant to some of our uh turkey ne- turkey nesting is uh because of inflation because of what's going on financially uh, around the world go around the globe it is going to be insanely expensive to produce herbicides and so already some some landowners are changing what they're planning on doing simply because they know they can't pencil in the profits, the margins. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to be able to buy my second beach house. No, we're talking about, I'm not going to be able to pay my bank note. I'm not going to be able to pay my loan on my equipment next year if I don't make a certain amount of money per acre. And if I double my costs on herbicide, knowing what the commodities, like grain price is, and given the fact that we're going to go into a drought in this past year, our, our harvest production was shitty because of the drought. If that continues, we're going to have another shitty harvest year, which I didn't pay. I didn't. I wasn't able to pay all my bills last year. But now you're going to tell you tell me you're going to double my cost for herbicide. No way I can eat that. No way can I can I absorb that. So guess what? You know what? Rather than run herbicide, I've got that old disc that's been sitting in the back of the barn there, back in the, in the implement yard for the past several years. Screw it. I'm gonna hit. I'm just gonna hook up the discs on the back of the tractor, and I'll just drag the discs across across the. Uh, the fields, and I'll just discard all the weeds under. Now, depending on when they do that, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we'll have some weedy, weedy fields, fallow fields this year to where we have some good nesting habitat in some, you know, random places. But the flip side is, is if, if the landowner just continues, he says, I need to keep this field free of weeds, and he goes out there and just runs a disc over it multiple times in a season, <coughs> what does that do for soil erosion? What does that do for wind erosion? What does that do for some of our wildlife stuff? I don't know. It's going to be an interesting uh, 
change because these past numbers of years, most landowners around me are no-till farming. No-till with, they're using herbicides and uh, a crop rotation with no-till that has set up a certain food slash habitat profile across the landscape. And if we change that now and we start running a disc through things, it's going to be interesting to see what the change is. There might be some benefit. Like I just said, if a landowner says, you know what, I'm not going to, I, I only have enough time and effort to just disc this once. So I'm going to grow Milo in this field and I can plant that Milo in June. So I'm not going to run herbicide over my fallow field, my stubble field this year. So I'm just going to let that field grow into weeds until end of May, beginning of June, and then I'll run the disc through it. Then I'll run the the drill through it and I'll plant. Maybe we'll have a whole shit, excuse me, a whole piss pile of new nesting cover that's beneficial for turkeys and pheasants and quail. Oh my! But if we have farmers that go out there multiple times and just just continually work the ground just to keep the weeds suppressed because they're going to plant something early, man, we may lose it. Because in some of these stubble fields where you've got really good milo stubble or you've got really good corn stubble, you actually can have turkeys go out there and nest in that. They'll run, you know, maybe the the, the farmer will run the uh, uh, the no-till drill through it, but they they leave all that cover behind. They yes, they can run a herbicide sprayer over top of it, knock down all the weeds, but the crop stubble that was there before couple especially coupled with the new crop growth can provide some really good nesting cover for for turkeys i, I think it's 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 going to be a crapshoot it's going to be uh it's going to be interesting to see what happens this year but anyway so that's what's going on it's just a bummer man I, and from me being selfish you know we run upland bird hunts and this year we really shut them down uh just because the, the just birds weren't there I, I i wasn't turning people well yeah no i did i Early in the season, I turned some people away and told them I wasn't going to run anything until January, which is fairly typical. I don't normally run our upland bird hunts until January after all of our deer hunts are done. But, you know, I just had real heart-to-heart conversations with our upland bird hunters. I said, listen, guys, they're just they're just not here. I mean, you're welcome to go take a walk through the field and go shoot some quail because the quail are doing okay. They, they, they still did okay because they have a the little bit more versatility. But our pheasants, man. There's only a handful of properties that, you know, we want to go and, and shoot a pheasant on. But, um, you know, from our so for our bird hunters, it sucked. And then for us, just me being selfish with, you know, my interaction with Jep and given, you know, he's 10 and I know he doesn't have too many years of just hard charging all day hunts, you know, or all, you know, good several hour hard hunts and, you know, left in him. It just, you don't want to squander. Um but it is what it is. So that's what's going on with pheasants, folks. For those people who are wanting to know what was going on or if, you know, because a lot of people came out to hunt and they're like, dude, is, is, is that what's going on over your area or what's going on? Well, yeah, some people did. Some people found them. Some people got on, you know, where they're, wherever their little pocket of habitat that they got in to go hunt, they, they were able to find some birds. Uh, but everybody says the same thing. It's just not what it was these past five years. All the gains that we had, gains, all that we're, we're 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 killing our gains here. Our our federal administrators killed our gains, killed all our gains, um, and it's just back to square one for next year. 
fingers crossed we still have some birds alive by nesting season so that they actually nest fingers crossed we have some hatching and fingers crossed the weather and conditions are conducive to those pole or those chicks surviving and we can have a different discussion on this next year i don't know all right so i'm gonna kill it that was a little bit longer than i thought but i was yeah i was sorry talked a little bit about the concert but yeah it is what it is it's what i wanted to talk about and if you're still listening great if not well scroll past we'll talk next week all right so you guys, thanks for tuning in, and uh, by all means, you know, again, you know, you hear this all the time. I, it, it's truth. Um, right now, we don't have advertisers. Right now, I'm still running everything through Row Hunting Resources. It's a subscription-based model. We've been doing it since 2010. I'm very encouraged by what I see trending these days. When so many other people are going to a subscription-based model, whether it's the censorship stuff, whether it's the just all the woke culture, what I don't care what it's for. But it is interesting to see how many people in the past told us we were making a massive mistake by going a subscription-based model of row hunting resources and that we should be going all in on advertising. And now a lot of people are bailing on advertising and going all in on subscription-based resources. But regardless, that is how we're doing this. this. This is part of my job. This is part of our, our family's income. And if you like this type of stuff, if you want me to continue to do this type of stuff and do more of this type of stuff, I've got a pile of video I've got to edit uh, and put together. Um, all that, all that is, this is my job. And my job is made possible by you guys supporting me, not only just by following and, go, and following along and looking at this stuff, but it's by the Row Hunting Resources subscribers. So if you would like to continue to hear this and, and want me to continue to, to ramp, basically ramp up all of the stuff that I'm going to be doing, um, I would just ask you to consider if you are a former member and you haven't resubscribed, please just consider, re- you know, subscribing back to, you know, re-up your membership. Um, if you've never subscribed, I, I encourage you to check it out. You know, uh, especially if you're an elk hunter, that's where the flagship is. Uh, the, the vast majority of information on there is, is regarding the elk behavior, vocalizations, communication. There is a turkey module in there that is geared toward beginners that want to learn how to turkey hunt and get into turkey hunting. Um, and then I do have a small whitetail module that I've just been putting off because there's been so much stuff that's out there for free. There's a lot of great, great people um, doing some really good stuff, really good work in the whitetail world. <clears throat> excuse me, whitetail world that put their stuff up on YouTube. Um, I, I'm probably going to retool some of the stuff that I'm going to do with my whitetails because the stuff. Now, that's a different discussion. Let's just kill it. I don't need to ramble on. But anyway, from the Row Hunting Resources website, the elk module, the turkey module, you can get an annual full-on module where you just get access to everything. In the future, maybe what I'll end up doing is putting a... Um, maybe what I'll do is, is put up a, a, a podcast membership to where you get to hear all the podcasts because a lot of these podcasts are going to be put out to the you know to everyone. But there are going to be some substantive... Uh, meat and potatoes type of podcast that will be posted just strictly for Row Hunting Resources members. So maybe what I'll end up doing is putting something up there. I don't like Patreon. Um, there's some issues with Patreon, uh, but there's other other avenues that we can explore. If you guys want to just you know throw five bucks you know my way or whatever, just just to say thanks for for doing the podcast. But we're gonna. I'm going to commit to at least getting these out at least once a week, if not multiple per week. I might actually do one later this week and talk about some more stuff. We'll see. If, uh, I'm going to try to get some folks lined up. 
I've got some questions for him. I, I've got I'd, I'd like to get some guests on that are knowledgeable in some topics and talk about some some specific topics that are affecting uh, a variety of different people. So anyway, I appreciate everybody's support. Again, uh, please, if you want to follow me on any social medias or YouTube or, you know, again, I'm going to start trying to get some stuff up on Rumble, I think is what I'm going to do. Maybe locals. I don't know. I'm still looking in, into those options. But regardless, it's always Row Hunting Resources. You can find me there. Instagram is the best place on social media or the website. Um, oh, and other people have asked about getting this on Spotify. I am researching that now. I'm going to see if I can't get this up on Spotify for you guys that are, have been continually asking about that. Um, I will try. All right. Thanks, everybody. 